Welcome back to the Bond Revisited podcast. You are listening to part two of episode 20, where we revisit and rank Die Another Day. After Bond wins a sword fight against Graves, he meets up with an old friend. Not that she would ever admit it. Join us as we take a look and eventually add Die Another Day to our rankings. Afterwards, uh, after Bond has beaten Graves, we cut back inside and things have calmed down a bit now. They're all dressed back in their suits and there's people cleaning up all the mess from behind, taking the painting away and and things like that. And uh, Bond meets up with Graves and Frost and writes him a check because, as you say, he won fair and square. And because he's so impressed with Bond, he invites him to uh, the scientific demonstration of his Icarus project in Iceland for that weekend, uh, the stuff that the press were asking about from before. And uh, I think Bond does say something to Frost about, oh, I hope I have the pleasure of you being there as well. And she's just she's having none of it. Um, she just shuts him down immediately um, and they both leave. Uh, and before... That was so so that was so good, that moment. <laughs> I love that moment so much. I can't <laughs> even remember yeah, what she says. says. Like, Can I expect the pleasure of you? No, it's not what she says. It's... um. Yeah, Bond's like, can I expect the pleasure of you in Iceland? And she says, I'm afraid you'll never have that pleasure, Mr. Bond. And then it cuts to Pierce Brosnan doing like an ooh face. Like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, that's something that's very surprising about the film. I'm not going to say all the humour works, especially the stuff with Jinx. A lot of it falls flat. But I was surprised how many of those small moments that are meant to be funny of Bond reacting to stuff actually really made me laugh. I think the, the humour, especially revolving Bond, is surprisingly solid. And I like that they allow Pierce to do this sort of stuff. Him doing like an, ooh, face, like, ooh, that's cold. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> yeah, they're not always going to be winners, Bond, and I guess he accepts that. Uh, but before the scene ends, there's a member of staff that comes over to him, quite randomly, he just comes out of the and says, Commander Bond, you've there's a package left for you, and it's this envelope, and inside is this big, old-fashioned-looking metal key, and Bond looks at it and sort of kind of... I don't know if he like looks out and something clicks clearly, like he knows what this key is for. So um we then uh we then cut to London and we're at Westminster Bridge because the key is actually to a small door just on uh, the side of the bridge. And actually it's a very easy bond location to find in real life if you if if you're into that sort of thing. I've gone to it because I've been like, oh my god, it's a door from Die Another Day. Uh, of course. Yeah, and you know what? If you're up for it. Trek's Adventure is right next door. So perfect. <laughs> Your whole day's sorted for you. That's ahead of a Saturday right there. <laughs> it's actually the same place where, if you're a fan of George Lazenby, the photo of him resting against the lamppost. The oh, that one. Didn't that get removed or something, though? Oh, did it? Sort of... oh. I remember reading something about people being upset about that. I'm not sure if you can do that anymore. Oh, okay. Oh, that's a shame. Anyway, um, yeah, so he unlocks this little kind of big well this big uh no it's little it's a little door what i'm talking about it's a little wooden door on the side and walks down some stairs and he ends up on this empty tube station platform with m kind of ominously standing waiting for him in the doorway Uh, and it's an abandoned station for abandoned agents he says uh, as he walks towards m and, and gives her back her calling card of the key and M is kind of getting straight to the point. She wants some information on on Graves, 
what's Bond found out, what's going on. And Bond is quite bitter still about what's happened with the whole career stuff and like the way that M's treated him and, oh, now you need me sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, M reveals that they only know the official biography of Graves. They don't know anything more malicious than that. So uh, according to MI6, he was just an orphan who learned engineering, found a diamond mine and uh, in Iceland and then gave some of his money to charity, which I guess is why he was getting knighted. And um, Bond talks about all the gene therapy stuff that happened in Cuba, the diamonds that he found on Zhao, um, which, again, prove it's all that smuggling conflict diamonds. So they are again. Uh, so, yeah, maybe Graves isn't as clean as he's uh, he's making out to be. And with that, Bond is suddenly useful once again. M gives her approval and uh, he can continue. Well, I say he can continue the mission kind of semi-officially, you know, as an outsider under the radar. Yeah, it was. Uh, I thought this was very cool. I always enjoy the whole extra dimension to uh, MI6. And I guess with this one, they kind of, you know, we're obviously not getting the classic sort of, oh, we're getting an updated version, right? We're getting a, a variant of all this MI6 stuff, but I, I think it actually works quite well. You know, the impact of Bond leaving MI6 and not being a double agent, you know, you don't really feel that much at all. It's no. just like a, a plot device, but I don't really mind that all that much, as I said, for the reasons I described before. And just seeing Bond and M talk. And I think something that's actually quite solid in this film is the dialogue between M and Bond. I think it's as maybe not as good as Goldeneye, but actually surprisingly really solid. There's a lot of solid lines between the two and having Bond leave and not be a double O anymore kind of creates some interesting kind of dialogue between the two. And obviously Judy Dent smashes it because she always does. Um, and Piers Brosnan and Judy Dent have a good back and forth. So yeah, I really enjoyed all these scenes with M and Bond and, it was cool to see this abandoned uh, sub, like uh, underground station. It was all all good stuff. Yeah, that's the bit I liked. Uh, the, all the all the dialogue was fine. It was all very plot heavy sort of stuff. But um, I did like the fact that they they've changed it now to this this empty tube station. It felt very uh, Skyfall <laughs> in retrospect, mm. um, just to change the scenery. I guess it's uh, that maybe they didn't want to blow up a MI six anymore, or have something else happen to MI six building, so they they stay well away. Um, yeah, like this stuff stands out more to me than like the Scotland stuff in the world is not enough. I find this like obviously these locations aren't as striking or stuff, but I, 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 this works a little bit better for me as a way of mixing it up. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, they are they are underground. Uh, they are literally underground and figuratively now for Bond. So it all works. But then actually after that scene, you think, well, okay, well we're in we're in the tube station bit, but no, we cut to Bond. He's back in his office in MI6. His office, which I guess we wouldn't have seen for quite some time. It would have been on a Master's Secret Service, right? Uh, yeah. I think so. He's in there. He's, he's sat down cleaning his gun with a little brush. Um, and it's all it's like late at night. All, a lot of lights are turned off. It's quite moody. And he hears some gunshots from outside his door. Oh, no. And so he, he's got his gun pointed and he walks out walking through the corridors and he sees some dead bodies on the ground he looks through into money penny's office and there she is dead on Not her desk money penny shot in the forehead rest in peace money penny um, oh, i want to say he made a quip but i can't think of one in time <laughs> about uh, oh i guess the penny's oh, dropped <laughs> i guess it landed on heads because she got shot in the head 
they're, <laughs> they're both good actually i like them yeah <laughs> send in your um, money penny is dead puns quips for bond send them in uh, to the usual address we'll read them all out next episode this is a blue peter competition <laughs> someone's going to win a badge guys best one gets the badge um, we visited badge oh that'd be nice uh, so he's joined by uh, Robinson, joins him in the situation, and they, they carry on looking through the corridors. They head into M's office, um, and M's in there, but she's being held hostage, and there's a few different men in there, uh, terrorists, I guess, and one of them kills Robinson, R.I.P. Robinson. No quips for him, don't care. And um, <laughs> Bond takes out a couple of the guys and is trying to figure out what to do with M. So he shoots the hand of the person holding her hostage and they let go. So she falls and then he finishes him off. And it all starts to go slow-mo and Q suddenly starts to phase through the scene and moans at Bond for injuring his boss. And he comes up to the camera and he see that he's actually taking glasses off of Bond because, yes... That wasn't real, folks. Don't worry. Oh. Money Penny's still alive. Robinson's dead, though. No. <laughs> yeah, they actually shot. Yeah, they shot him off screen. To yeah, make that work. Had to be extra real. Uh, but no, it was all a training exercise that Q was doing for for Bond. Um, do you want me to talk about this first? Then. Well, I, I just did. Do you have anything to say? Yeah. I don't like it. You don't like. I it? I like the very end moment of Bond making that decision to like shoot M's soldier uh, shoulder. <laughs> to save her and being like oh yeah well if you see i actually did did the right thing but this is just all, all a bit lame all a bit rubbish all a bit like it's not really a very good gotcha moment i don't think it's all that interesting it kind of comes out of nowhere and also it allows for a, another very bad scene to happen oh right towards the end <laughs> so i would prefer if they cut this stuff from the film entirely um, because overall, I've enjoyed this film quite a bit at this point, and it doesn't really sink anything. It is once again the pacing of this film is pretty good. Everything's quite quick. Nothing stays on. Uh, you know, you don't hang around on one thing too long. So this is just a quick kind of one-off thing. But yeah, I would have just, um, I would have cut this. But the glasses thing, I don't think it adds anything at all. More glasses for Pierce. I don't oh, know. Yeah, you're right. I, I'm I'm in two minds about this because it. You're right. It is basically pointless. You could take this out of the film and the other bit and, and it, you wouldn't lose anything. They don't ever bring this back in terms of the actual mission and, and stuff like that. I guess how would they? But uh, I do... It is cheesy, though. And I, it's not a true gotcha moment. You're never going to really think, oh, my God, they killed Money Penny. But you know, this, isn't, <laughs> this isn't Game of Thrones or anything. But I, I do still like it. I just like that we're in this early 2000s. It's very video gamey. I think it's because it reminds me of, like the beginning of everything or nothing like the video game or something like that it's just it seems so of its time and i think we were kind of touching on this with tomorrow never dies about being a product of the the 90s and like we're now getting into the 2000s and i don't i don't hate it but i can definitely understand how it, it could be removed without much love lost yeah it's almost like by itself it's like an interesting kind of time capsule like it's an interesting scene in itself in terms of bond it's just in terms of the film as a whole, cut it. But I, I do appreciate what you're saying. I can kind of appreciate it in terms of a individual scene showing Bond doing some training. Like it, it might be a fun DVD extra. Like I would like it like that. Yeah. I just Ooh. don't really like it in the film itself. That should be like a, do you know how DVDs used to have games on them? 
Yeah. There should be like a choose your own adventure thing with Bond. Like you choose which directors to go. Oh no, M died. You lose. <laughs> <laughs> you got to shoot M to play the like director's commentary. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love that. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, Q takes off the glasses and yeah, as you say, Bond says, well, actually M's fine, flesh wound, but she survives. And you realize that, yeah, they're still in the underground uh, station, uh, tube station, uh, as they walk into Q's lab there. I say it's a lab. It looks more like a storage room. It's filled to the brim with gadgets from previous films uh, where they keep the old relics, as Bond puts it. And so this was the moment I was saying, like, you should... This is where you need to pause because they, they just cram this scene with so many little Easter eggs and little things to look out for. I mean, the film points out some very obviously with Bond fiddling with them. Um, so, you know, you see uh, in the background, you've got the crocodile sub from Octopussy. You've got Kleb's dagger shoe from From Rush of Love, which Bond even has a quick smell of. <laughs> it's a quick sniff of it. <laughs> it's like, ooh. <laughs> and the uh, the jetpack from Thunderball, which I guess is the thing that you were... Is this yeah, a... that's, that's yeah. the one I did get. Like, Which, as a kid, I definitely wouldn't have understood that at all. I would have been like, what the hell is that? But... Yeah, now actually it's uh, kind of cool because, yeah, he turns it on, I think. Yeah, it turns well, he plays it with to, it a bit. Yeah, and it starts to go off and Q puts it back down. I, I, When I finished watching the film and I was looking back on scenes like this with the whole element of the 40th anniversary and references back, I was thinking, is this a bit too fan service Like, is it a bit too much? I don't think it is because I think people that don't know the Bond films wouldn't care. But it, this is like the most meta the film apart from maybe the the gold finger whistle and things like that but this this is the most meta i felt the the series has been i would say yeah i think so i don't think it's over the top but this this again ties into what i think the tone of die another day is this type of tone i think for me means it gets away with it mm. the fact that it is a more fun over the top sort of film i think that means they can do it yeah. But if this was like a Timothy Dalton film and he just walks in and sees all this stuff, then I'd be like, that's strange. Why is Timothy Dalton playing with the Thunderball jet <laughs> But because it's Pierce Brosnan and because of the direction of this film, I think for me it works really well and just is a really cool uh, sort of set. I didn't pause, by the way. I didn't really take a big look at that. But I think even just seeing Pierce Brosnan messing around with the shoe and the, <laughs> the Thunderball jetpack is enough for me. That's just fun. I can enjoy that. Uh, yeah. I just liked when you sniffed it. I thought it was really funny. Um, <laughs> so we do get onto the actual gadget demonstration, not just ones from previous films. Q uh, walks Bond up to this bit of bulletproof glass and starts shooting to prove it. And he shows him this sonic agitator ring, which if you put your ring, put the ring to the, the glass, it shatters it. And he's got a watch, which he says is, uh, oh, this must be your 20th by now or something like that, being the 20th film. And then they head out onto like an actual train platform area and Q uh, triggers this empty stand to come out of the tunnel and says, this is your new transportation. Um, And obviously it's just completely, it looks completely empty. Bond's like, I think you've been down here too long. And Q starts to walk onto the platform and walk onto the other side. And then you see his legs warp and distort because he's walking behind something. And then we get that kind of prompts a uh, almost well, I think it is word for word replica of Goldfinger, where Bond says, "You must be joking." And uh, he says, "As my predecessor told me or taught me, I never joke about my work." It doesn't quite land the same way, 
as good old Desmond, but uh, you can see what they were trying to trying to do there. It's it's all right. It's it's a big like, nudge and a wink, isn't it, to the audience? But yeah, hmm. this is the uh, the Aston Martin Vanquish, or as they're calling it, the Vanish. It's a, a car with adap- adaptive camouflage. It's all cameras over it and polymer, blah blah blah. But yeah, it's it's basically invisible. It's an invisible car. Um, it's all kitted out with. The regular features, it's got the, well, the ejector seat's back from Goldfinger and it's got torpedoes and uh, target-seeking shotguns and Bond demonstrates that by chucking up the hefty instruction manual in the air and it shoots them into a little dust. Um, it So this is a... The car, I think, is another one of those things that people like to focus on with this film. I really don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with the concept of this, this film. At all, uh, the, the sorry, the concept of this car in this film at all, because as you said, the tongue is in the cheek of this film so many times, and the tone of it 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 suits it. And also, we've had really silly, fake sci-fi stuff in the past. Anyway, I really don't care that it's invisible. I think it looks cool. The only thing I do have a problem with is that this isn't. I was. I don't think it's used very well later on in the film, but on its own. I have no problems with with the vanish. No, I don't either. I always, I mean, maybe this is because I was a kid. I always thought the car was incredibly cool. <laughs> I think it's so neat. Uh, but I really like the look of this car. I'm so happy we're back to Aston Martin because mm. they just look so much better than the BMWs. You know, we don't care about cars that much, but I think anyone can just look at the BMW and the Aston Martin and be like, look how cool the Aston Martin looks <laughs> compared to it. So it's nice to have a really good-looking Bond car. And I really love the fact that, yeah, it's Aston Martin. The most iconic car is the DB5. Yeah. The DB5. So I like that we now have a new one, which isn't just that car. It's like a modern version of it. And I think it looks incredibly cool. Um, So I I love this car. To me, when I was younger, this was the Bond car because it was Aston Martin and stuff. I didn't really have that concept of the DB5 uh, from Goldfinger and stuff. So this, to me, was the Bond car. It helps that it's all in all the video games as well. Yeah, <laughs> They put it in that as well. So this became like the Bond car, and I, I love it for that. So I don't know. In terms of the concept, I've never really thought about it too much. I I never really saw it as anything that crazy. So I kind of agree with you. If people aren't into it, fair enough to you. But I never really saw how this crossed a line compared to some of the other wacky stuff we've had in the past. And this film just has a lot of wacky stuff in it. So it makes sense to me that the car might be something a little bit more out there. And I think it does set up a couple of cool moments later on. So, yeah, I'm for it. I think it's quite neat. I guess the other thing to point out in the scene is that this is this is now uh, Q, well, John Cleese as Q, just him on his own, no Desmond anymore. Um, and it's the only time we see him in this role. Obviously, he gets... But Q gets kind of written out for a little while in the series going forward. So do you really? Have, I don't really have much to say. I think it's more of the same as we saw in The War's Not Enough, where I don't really... There's just not enough time. There's just not enough time between these, these characters. That I guess... I don't know. I never really thought that early on when it was Desmond Llewellyn, but I, the, the character was different then to an extent. And I, mean, I, think, I thought this was just fine, really. The thing that stood out to me is that this was written as if it was Desmond. Yeah. It's just John Cleese doing it instead. Yeah. So that's a bit odd. But I think because it is just a more traditional Bond Q scene, 
it is better than the last film because of that, because they just go through the motions a bit. And I like some of the lines. I like when uh, John Cleese is like, always an excuse, double O zero. <laughs> so Ooh. childish. But like, but like, like the, uh, but yeah, I think that's the thing. That's, as you say, there just wasn't enough time for any of this. And next film, he's gone. So it's like a bit, it just all felt a bit pointless at the end of the day. But, you know, he does a decent enough job. It's just they never really found his feet with it. And this is a very standard cue dialogue back and forth. So it's all fine. It's all completely fine. It's just not really worth thinking about that much because it just didn't matter in the end mm. yeah oh well oh well poor john cleese he'll, he'll be fine uh we then see M in her office and someone enters the room she looks up someone comes in but we don't see who it is straight away because we only see M looking at them and she starts talking about this person's mission to iceland so you think it's oh it's bond bond's come in and there's one last sort of thing to talk about but no it's revealed it's actually Frost. Whoa. What? Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Frost is uh, an undercover agent. She's also working for MI6. And uh, with M, M's dialogue, we learn that uh, she's been investigating graves for for three months. She, she's wanted to go on this, this assignment. And after three months, she has not found anything to no avail. And uh, M warns that Bond is about to join in and, and mix things up a bit and try and find out some more and basically keep an eye on him don't let things go out of out of control keep an eye on it all and uh and frost is worried about this saying that oh he's gonna blow my cover i've seen the sort of things he do he does like with the the uh fencing fight um and then the scene kind of ends with m pointing out that in all of her years of training and things like that frost has never fraternized with anyone and uh Frost makes it a point that, oh no, she'll, she'll definitely, you know, keeping uh, work and pleasure separate, especially with James Bond. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, that's a little bit on the nose, that. But... Yeah. But I do like the description Frost gives because M's like, what do you know about, you know, James Bond? And I like the description where it's like, he'll, if there's a, yeah, he's a danger to himself of others, kill first, ask questions later. He likes to provoke. And that's how he gets things done. I think she's pretty on the nose. Like, does it gives a very good description? Oh yeah, and yeah. I actually quite like that. I think very that's fair, quite cool. very fair analysis. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll talk about Frost later in the film. Um, but yeah, I guess interesting enough. So we then go to Iceland, and now we're in Iceland. Cue the weird fast forward and then stop footage. Oh yeah. Which I guess that's the only way I can describe it, where the camera just shoots across over all this landscape and then suddenly stops um, to see Bond in the Aston Martin. So we start getting that. It's it's more, you know, early 2000s filmmaking where it's like going fast because I guess they figured out how to do it and think it looks cool. Um, uh, but yeah, so fast forward and we see Bond on the road with his Aston Martin and he arrives at the, the Ice Palace. So, yes, yeah, so Graves is having his big scientific event for Icarus at this giant ice palace. And that's what the film calls it. But, yeah, it's just a giant building made out of ice. So Bond parks up, gets out, a guard shows up, and he's like, I'm Mr. Kill. <laughs> <laughs> In my notes, I just put, I'm Mr. Kill. And then, okay, like, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, thank like, you. It's really, 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 really awkward. 
Yeah, there's no clever dialogue here. It's just a giant dude who looks like a henchman. So it's like, I'm Mr. Kill. Of which Bond responds, now there's a name to die for. Oh. Because of Kill. Um, so Bond looks over and he sees like this speed rocket car out on the ice going very quick. Uh, and then it starts slowing down. It uses parachute and it stops right in front of the palace. And Graves gets out of the car and like some engineer comes up to him. Who I didn't really write that much about this guy. This guy to me was always engineer. Mm, not a nerdy science guy. Yeah, but he's not like an important character, but you see him a lot. Like he yeah. hangs out a lot um, around Graves. Um, so he gets out and saying, that was a new personal best, sir. That was the fastest you've ever gone. And Graves is mad saying one of the engine cuts out or something, make sure it's fixed. So Graves then goes off to Bond and they they enter the palace and there's a bit of back and forth between the two. It kind of ends with him saying like, all the advantages of uh, never sleeping, because he's going all in with this I don't sleep thing, is saying, I have to leave, live my dreams. Then he's saying, besides, there's plenty of time to sleep when you're dead. Um, so it, it's a lot of that type of dialogue. I quite like and that line, actually. I, I like it. Yeah. I just think it's actually quite a good line. Virtues of, virtues of not sleeping, I have to live my dreams. Like, hmm, yeah, I, could, I could see that on a, on a poster or something. <laughs> yeah, well, it fits in with this eccentric millionaire who's in love with himself thank you say all this stuff um, so yeah that happens quite quick not too much between the two Grays leaves and instantly frost then shows up and greets bond uh and i think bond i hope i get this right bond says like oh a palace of ice i bet you feel right at home because her name's <laughs> frost to get it, <laughs> it really, that made me laugh quite a bit <laughs> a lot of this stuff does this was like the maybe the most I ever laughed at a Bond film, and not even at it in a lot of cases. A lot of these little quips just really got me. They're so blunt, they're so on the nose. I'm just like, fine, let's do it. Um, but yeah, so she explains that the palace was built all just for this event. Like it's all very, uh, very over the top. So they built this for this event, and next door is the diamond mine, which doesn't come up again. I don't think ever. Uh, but she just mentions the diamond mine is actually nearby next door. Um, so as they're talking, we see Jinx arrives in a red sports car. So Jinx is here, um, part of the event. And Frost then takes Bond to the ice. His, <laughs> I put ice hotel room because that's what it is. Bond has a room. Yeah. So Frost escorts Bond to his room and, and leaves him in there. So we then cut to later that evening where we're in the large main hall of this ice palace, and there is a dance remix of Die Another Day playing as the, oh, the music for this. Is that the song that plays over the credits as well? It probably is the same one, yeah. I didn't connect those two, but it's definitely like, you know, that long-form dance remix yeah. type of thing. Wow, I completely... I'm, <laughs> I call it on the credits, obviously. I completely missed it here. That's surprising, because I don't know if they say any of the the actual vocals but to me it was pretty pretty in your face <laughs> joe ball i was distracted by this point i get i seem to be distracted on very inane things in this film earlier it was m's drink in this scene i was distracted by the fact that everyone everyone in that place would be absolutely freezing most oh, of yeah. all most of all jinx who we are going to see soon because she's wearing a dress with like open sleeves and everything they would be freezing and there's absolutely no breath visible and it was really bugging me like you would see people's breath why do they not put Brett in? They didn't have the tech yet. No. Well, the, yeah, I guess the 
the practicality of this ice palace is something you shouldn't think about. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. This is another st- a stop for people. If you're like Ice Palace, you might get off at the station. I nearly did. I stepped off. But I was like, you, you know what? Pod- podcast, I'll get back on. I'll get back on. So, all right, one more. We can keep going. Yeah. Um, so Bond goes and order a Fokker Martini. <laughs> and he says, <laughs> Fokker Martini, plenty of ice if you can spare it. <laughs> it's, I, it really made me laugh. It, it shouldn't he- do. Yeah, you two were on the same wavelength, this film. This is like my kind of pun, I guess. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't say I'm someone who makes a ton of puns and stuff, maybe when I was younger, but like these puns were just like exactly the type of puns I want. So blunt, so on the nose, but like not too like thoughtless. There is still a joke here that works. It's just so blunt and he just does it all the time. Mm. Just going around making these jokes. It's hilarious. Uh, so Bond sees Jinx. And I think he just says, like, mojito. Mojito? mojito? Yeah, mojito. (laughs) And don't worry, guys. They go straight into bird banter. Straight away talking about birds. Because she's still playing, like, oh, are you here to see the local birds? And he's like, yep, sure, sure am, blah, blah, blah. And, yeah, there, there was some sort of talk. Like, they kind of referenced the fact that they did that thing in Cuba and... Jinx has a line about saying, I'm a girl that just doesn't like to be tied down. Um, again, more awkward dialogue. I kind of didn't mind this one because it was almost funny that they're doing the bird stuff again. I was just like, oh no, <laughs> stop. But it's so ridiculous that they just instantly go back to bird puns and jokes. I'm just like, all right, I kind of like that in its own dumb way. That's all they have in common. All they can talk about. So they got, man. It's just awkward otherwise. Um, but yeah, more bad dialogue from those two. So we see a van pull up to the Ice Palace and there's like a man in a hood that kind of gets out and he enters the palace, like, or maybe not the palace, but he's like entering a building nearby. Um, actually, is that building nearby the Biodome? Is that where the diamond mine is? I think so. Yeah. That would make more sense, actually. Yeah, yeah. Okay, f- fair enough. I never Although, connected those. It two. doesn't look like a mine because it's jungly, so I, I don't no. quite get that. But yeah, I think that is supposed to be the biodome mine. I don't know. Right, so, fair enough. Biodome mine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, so this man enters this room and he sees Graves is in there and he's wearing like a weird neon rainbow face mask. So it's somewhat similar to what we saw Zhao wear before, but this one's a little bit more over the top. With like these strands going on him. So he's lying down with his eyes closed with this big uh, mask on him. So the hooded man removes the mask and then he reveals his face. And it's Sal. Sal is there and they talk in Korean saying hello, hi, I guess. Um, And then they hug. And Graves actually explains that the insomnia is real. So when he's talking about never sleeping, that's actually true. And it's because of this DNA therapy that is currently going through. Um, but Graves look at, looks at Sal and saying, what's going on? What happened? You didn't, tra- you know, you're still, you look a bit odd. Um, and Sal says it was Bond. <laughs> you look a bit odd. <laughs> oh, something not right about you. What Your is diamonds it? Hair- are off. Haircut? Uh. S- something, glasses. <laughs> Sal probably misses his old class. (laughs) Um, But Graves explains that Bond doesn't even know who he is. He got this close to him 
and then gets very uncomfortably close to Zhao um, and says, like, oh, Bond doesn't even know who I am. Um, and Zhao explains that General Moon still mourns your death. Oh, no. Uh, whatever that means. So we go back to Bond, and Bond and Jinx is still talking about birds, probably, uh, but this time Frost joins them. And I think the only reason is for one joke, because this dialogue is completely pointless and a waste of time, but I think it's just one joke where Frost says, oh, has Bond been explaining about his Big Bang Theory? And then Jinx is like, I think I got the thrust of it. Awful. Just, Boo. And then Frost just leaves. <laughs> so, oh. It's like, oh, they set this little scene up just for that joke, and it's a terrible joke. Yeah, that sucks. So, but let's, let's think about this, though. Thrust of it. So is that because Big Bang Theory is the origin of the universe, and the universe takes place in space... And the way we get to space is with a rocket, and a rocket has thrust to go into space. That's the PG version, yeah. No, but I know the the double entendre <laughs> side of it. But I mean, in terms of like the connection between Big Bang, as in like the concept of the actual Big Bang, and thrust in terms of making the joke work, I think that's it. Big Bang's a space thing, and space things like a rocket, and rocket has thrust. Wow, I I did not think about it that much. I would have. I guess I would have read that as maybe just the thrust of the, like, the bang. It's just on a very, very I, I guess level. so. Maybe it is the thrust of the bang, but would you ever see something... <laughs> and then the universe was thrust into existence. <laughs> I, don't, I honestly don't know. This is why this is bad. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Now, the oh, ice yeah. joke, classic. This one is just so forced and so awkward. Like, oh, it's more awkward, bad dialogue. And... The way Harry Berry says this line, it's like it's supposed to be like sexy and funny and cool. And it's like, ooh, it's none of those things, Harry. It's none of these things, Berry. Calm it down. Yeah. Yeah. Just stop. Yeah. So we then cut to everyone is now outside. Um, and Graves is on a stage and there's lots of lights and he starts doing a little speech. Um, and Bond is in the crowd and he sees three Korean men nearby. So he, he takes notes of those. So his three Korean men are here watching the speech. Um, so Graves hits a, a switch. He has like this control panel in front of him. He hits a switch. And we cut to space. Speaking of uh, thrust. the thrust. Yeah. We cut to space where we see like this satellite almost. And it's like turning in space. And like the front of it opens up to be this like big circular mirror i suppose it's i don't know what the best way to describe it is hmm yeah a big dish yeah it's like a dish but it's almost like i i thought it was like a kite (laughs) it was the best way i could describe it very expensive kite very expensive kite yeah very uh yeah so yeah stuff is going on there so while that is all kind of setting up and graves is giving his speech and he's talking about there being a second sun. Imagine if there could be a second sun, like a diamond in the sky. Uh, then he hits a button and says, let there be light. And the space thing, the satellite, with this big reflective kind of dish on front of it, reflects sun re- sunlight down onto the crowd, and it makes it look like it's day, although really it's just very white. And he's like, I give you Icarus. And everyone's like, oh, very good. I like Icarus. Very good stuff. Oh, yes, bravo. Um, 
Yeah, so he turns off Icarus. So that was the demonstration. So Icarus is a giant satellite where there's like this big mirror thing in front of it. And the general idea is that you can then reflect the sun anywhere on the world, which is supposed to be like, oh, we can stop world hunger. We can have plants growing all the time and, and things like that. So like, like it's he presents it as like a, oh, we can actually have, or we can have like solar energy. Like he presents it as this like environmentally friendly thing that we can now control sun rays by reflecting stuff in space down. And he does that by saying, oh, look, it's daylight, even though it's actually meant to not be daylight. It's terrible. Looks terrible. I, I guess <laughs> you're saying the CGI is not. Well, not yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they just got to set that day and they were like, "Oh, who who brought the lights? Did anyone bring the lights?" Oh, I thought Bob was doing it. Oh, oh, I didn't bring them. Oh, Joe, you know what? We'll do it in post. We'll just crank up the we'll white. Just whack, yeah, just whack up the contrast. Whack stuff. it up, and then it will it will work. Don't worry, we got this covered. Lee, don't worry. Get on with your filming. And it's just no, it doesn't work. It looks terrible. Yep. Is that bad though? Um, in the grand scheme of things, no. <laughs> yeah. That's where I was. Like, I agree, it looked terrible, but I was kind of like all in on this stuff by this point. So this stuff doesn't bother me, and I totally get why it bothers other people. This just does. It just doesn't bother me. I. It just goes. It just like a swan's back or something. I don't know. It just rolls off. I don't mind by this point. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to kind of reveal my hand a little bit early. But not too much. But I'm going to say that it's at this point, well, a few minutes earlier. But we're, we are pretty much halfway through the film when we when we go to the Ice Palace. And we stay here for a significant portion of the film. Um, this is where the film really starts to dip for me. I think, for me, a lot of the stuff we've seen so far, I've really enjoyed. But I might be less... <laughs> I think I think it's I I won't necessarily hate a lot of stuff going forward, but I just really won't care about it, which is maybe bad for d- different reasons. So yeah, this is just the start of that where I'm like, that looks terrible, eh. <laughs> and it goes from there. I get what you mean, and and I think there is one scene in particular, and I wrote it in my notes where I think the pacing takes a big hit. I wouldn't say it's now because we're still early on in the Iceland stuff, but there are multiple sequences in Iceland which normally I'll be pretty up for. But yeah, there is one specific moment where I was like, oh, the pacing has kind of been flushed down the toilet a little mm. bit. <laughs> and that happens with uh, with Iceland, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Bond notices that Jinx has disappeared. So Jinx and Bond was actually standing next to each other, but she's disappeared. Uh, so Bond then kind of sees that the control panel that Grace was using to control Icarus this engineer guy that was there before, he kind of takes it away and him and Mr. Kill kind of walk off. Um, so Bond decides to follow them and he sees that they go through a gate with some guards posted. So Bond looks around and he sees his car, the Vanish. Um, so he gets into that. I think he gets into it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think he gets into it at this point and starts kind of, yeah, he like follows them through the gate. They don't really show how, but he uses the Vanish to get through that gate um, so he's following the engineer into another building and they they go inside. I think they use like a, a card or something to get into one building. And then from the car, Bond sees Mr. Kill use his hand to open the next door. And that's how they get fully into uh, the biodome that we mentioned before, which is this building next to the Ice Palace, which is this very tropical, like greenhouse area. Um, so that's where Grace was before and Sal was before. And now that's where Mr. Kill and the engineer is going. So Bond steps out of the Vanish. And then he like 
heads towards a pipe or heads towards part of the biodome, peeks through the window, sees a pool of water, and then walks off. And that's very important for later. It's a bit confusing, but that's very important for something that like, happens <laughs> later. But it's very confusing. Hmm, water. Okay. <laughs> hmm, I'll make a note of that. I, also, one other thing. I just... I don't want to start moaning too much. And I, I, I said before, I like the car and I like the invisibility stuff. But as Bond is in that car, sneaking behind them, invisible, behind the guards, he is so close to those guards. So yeah. close. <laughs> We're like stupidly close to those guards that that must have the quietest engine known to man or it's an electric car. I don't know. It just, just because it's invisible doesn't mean it doesn't make sound. <laughs> yeah, they wanted to have a shot in the film which was the guards walking forward, or Mr. Kill walking forward, and then the tyre tracks on the snow revealed itself. Yeah. But to have that all make sense and for you to understand what's going on, as you say, the car is really close to them. <laughs> so you can see the tyre tracks and then the guards right in front of them. <laughs> yeah. Not a massive fan of that bit. It's a good thing Bond didn't sneeze because that would have really <laughs> ru- like ruined things for him. <laughs> or he just stalled the car or something embarrassing oh crap he just turns on the radio the clash starts playing so, oh no oh my favorite song no <laughs> uh yes so we go inside the biodome and graves approaches this engineer guy and the engineer has like this glove and graves is like is this fifty thousand volts going through this and he's all like a hundred thousand volts he's like <laughs> So Graves has like an electric glove. What's the point of that? Um, so Bond, back to Bond. Um, so a guard just kind of sees Bond, I think, while he's sneaking outside. Bond is able to like knock him out, but Mr. Kill just sees him and sounds the alarm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're there. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it just sounds the alarm and like two guards come out of the biodome to try and find Bond. He just like hides near this like valve and decides, like, oh, I'm going to turn on the valve, which just shoots, like, a load of steam or something, which knocks out those two guards, which just, just got nothing to do. So, nothingly. <laughs> um, but Graves, on his PC inside, sees there's an intruder, and you can tell because his PC screen says, intruder alert, in massive letters. <laughs> it's so useful they program that in. So handy. Um, so, but, yeah, Bond is able to kind of get away. Yeah. So because he knocks out the two guards... The alarm's still going off, but Bond is actually able to just sneak around and walk off. So as he's trying to get away, Frost grabs him from behind a car and starts kissing him. So Mr. Kill and some guards are looking around trying to find him, and Frost is basically doing it just to keep Bond's cover. So at this point, she pretty much reveals that she's MI6. I'm assuming that Bond already knew, um, because why wouldn't he? But we don't really get a scene of Bond finding out that Frost is MI6, so bit are strange but yeah at this point bond definitely knows so they're kissing and there's a bit of thing where she's all like oh i hate this and bond is like this is great and then she starts being like oh i know what it is with you sex for dinner death for breakfast and lots of kissing and it was a little bit too sloppy for me this kissing yes, that's exactly what i wrote down very wet kissing yeah it's a bit gross some of the sounds and some moaning coming from them it's like didn't need this didn't need this at all I just found it strange that, yeah, like there's this big intruder alert thing. And as you say, Bond just walks out. There's no alarm. There's no lights going off. I was really expecting it to be a big red light flashing. But no, they, the guards just quite 
slowly walk out after him and and yeah that's when <laughs> frost grabs him very yeah, low the, key very low key yeah again once again a little bit awkward a little bit strange <laughs> doesn't bother me son doesn't bother me i'm on for the ride <laughs> so i don't really mind but yeah i could have done without the the sloppy kissing but all that other stuff i don't know it's all so very silly graves being like a hundred thousand volts ah, ha, ha, and mr kill we talk about mr kill here people walking around and steam it's all yeah it's not meant to be cool i hope um so i don't really <laughs> yeah. mind it and let's just be thankful that sloppy kissing from from pierce and frost or uh what's her name rosamund but at least no biting we saw how much bond yeah. loves to bite but he restrained himself in this film at least for now yeah. hmm. um anyway <laughs> Uh, as the two of those uh, two of them make their escape and we do get a bit of cutting back and forth between what they do and what Jinx does so I might just squish some bits together to make it easy to explain but we do see that um, Jinx is there she's all suited up like to break in she's at the top of the the biodome I'm calling it and she's she's in her stealthy red leather spy gear oh so stealthy when you go to Iceland you want (laughs) to At what night. color? <laughs> red, bright red. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point, actually. Yeah, uh, but she's at the top of it. She's cutting open using a laser to cut open a panel at the top and uh, descends down on the rope all the way to the bottom. And she starts to look around. And as she's looking around, she snoops and finds Zhao, who is in the uh, the dream machine. I don't know how I wrote... Was Dream Machine... Did someone say Dream Machine? Did you say Dream Machine? It might be. I know there's the whole thing about... I think... Yeah, I think Grave says, oh, that's how I dream using the machine because I can't sleep. I just wondered how I got the phrase Dream Machine, but maybe I heard it somewhere. Uh, He's dreamy. Sal's a bit dreamy. Very dreamy. That's probably why. He's in that. And uh, as she gets quite close to him about to do something, uh, I think she lifts up the visor. uh, But nope, doesn't get very far. She gets zapped by Graves' zappy power glove, Nintendo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then we are back with uh, Frost and Bond. They go back to the Ice Hotel, and to keep up the uh, charade of of being lovers, Bond says, oh, you've got to stay in my suite. Oh, yes. Um, And so they head to the, the lovely ice swan bed and start to undress. Um and get into bed together and bond puts a gun under his pillow she calls an occupational hazard and uh later on uh afterwards he's getting dressed and uh frost they kind of make a point of this but frost gives him back his gun um from under the pillow and says be careful james sort of thing uh with jinx we see that she has been Oh, we're up to this bit. I'll just <laughs> see where we are. Uh, she's been restrained to a sort of table on a, on a robot arm. Well, it's like a, like a car factory robot arm. And yeah, I don't know what you would call that. It's just like, yeah, it's like a table, but it's like mechanical so it can move. Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly something. And Zhao's there, um, who is kind of threatening her and asking about... Um, who sent her, giving her some zaps with the glove. And I just got to point out, I wrote this down, the zaps, that the electrocution in this film looks worse than in Gold uh, GoldenEye. 
Yeah. It just does. This is the problem of early CGI. It looks worse than tried and tested, you know, actual methods. So, Well, I think the problem is that it's supposed to be on people where Goldeneye just did it on like planes in the sky and could be a bit more stylized. This is like zoomed in shot of Halle Berry being electrocuted. And she's like, ah! and they've mm. just had to put like electric stuff on it. So it's like, I don't know if I wouldn't necessarily say the CGI is worse, but I think the the implementation of like what they were trying to use it for is a lot, lot worse. Like they did not have the technology to put off a close up person being zapped shot. No. No, they didn't have the tech to do a lot of stuff coming up in this scene. Uh, so Sal is asking, yeah, who sent her? And she replies, yo, mama. <laughs> I can't Got him. I can't. She does say something else after that, but I only cared about the yo, mama, to be she honest. She says, and she wanted me to tell you she's really disappointed in you. Oh, that's, okay. that's funny. Good line. Uh, that's a great line. Yo, mama. Uh, <laughs> and... Zhao says that even though the mine is fake, so this is where you learn that the mine is not actually a real diamond mine, the lasers that I guess presumably are used for the diamonds are real. And the lasers Ooh. in this room and on this table are real. And so he, uh, Mr. Kill was there, by the way. Forgot to mention that. He's just there in the background. And um, Zhao gives orders to Mr. Kill to uh, do as his name suggests and, and kill her. And... Um, he very enthusiastically wants to use the lasers. I'm going to use the laser. So uh, he kind of sets up the laser. Very Goldfinger-esque. You know, it's just this time it's on a moving thing and going in a different part of the body because it's slowly working its way across her neck, kind of getting up to that point. Oh, okay. Um, speaking of lasers, sorry, did you actually want anything to say about that scene before I move on? Uh, no, not really. I think it's... Yeah, we got more lasers to come. Oh, we got plenty it. of lasers, yeah. So speaking of lasers, Bond is also using a laser. He's using his uh, laser watch uh, to Hooray! cut. Yeah, that comes back. And hey, I like that. Yeah, he's using it to cut a hole in the ice because I think it was mentioned earlier that yeah, this ice palace is on top of a lake. That's when he was spotting the, the water from earlier. So um, he cuts a hole in and he uses his rebreather, which is another Thunderball reference. Um, to jump down and swim underneath the layer of ice to get into the biodome, popping up at the bubbling pool from earlier. He, and... you, when, you know, he looked in the window that one time, guys, so... That's how yeah. he knew. Yeah. The water, yeah. And in there, he spots Jinx's rope and then goes and finds her on the table. Mr. Kill's not there at first. He just goes in and, and she's there, you know, help me sort of thing, and he goes and turns off the machine. There's this controller that's attached by a cable that swings around and as he turns off the the laser that's going to her neck that's when he gets attacked by mr kill and in in all the hubbub uh, the lasers turn back on somehow and except there's not just one laser there's tons of them and now they're moving frantically all around the place and like going in circles and not just straight lines so this looks crazy <laughs> There's just all these red lasers in the scene going crazy. Uh, Jinx is still tied to the this table that's also moving around it slightly. And Bond and Mr. Kill start fighting. And this fight is just pretty lame. You would think with them being in the middle of these scary looking dangerous lasers, they would do something with that. But they just kind of move out of the way. And they show the laser like searing some things or cutting through some things. but 
nothing really happens um, in terms of like them actually fighting around the lasers. They just do. Uh, and then Bond goes and grabs a controller and turns them off. So <laughs> that's that's kind of it. Uh, and as he's doing that, he gets caught again by Mr. Kill and starts getting strangled and I think he's about to stab him with something in his hand. And uh, as he's doing that, Jinx has managed to grab the controller once again. She's now got the controller. With one hand, I think, she manages to program one of the lasers to be precisely behind Mr. Kill's head and then activate it, activates it so it shoots through his skull and out of his mouth. And... I was moaning a bit about the lasers just then. I think this is actually a pretty cool death. It's quite uh it's quite grizzly looking for a Bond film. It's not not quite head popping, but you know, just seeing Mr. Kill uh with his mouth open and the laser shooting out of it. Uh I oh, I think it pretty much saved the scene, although it still looked terrible. Yeah, it's it's still a CGI, right? <laughs> it's CGI, but also just it just makes it makes no sense either like if you're going to have these crazy lasers spinning around then you you'd think you'd have moments where i don't know there's more thought into like dodging them or them doing something but they don't like it's just shots of them in between bond and mr kill all the time and there's just no tension there they just look like wacky waving things with fake lasers on top so that side of it's bad i like the mr kill death but the rest of it is, is pretty bad you are 100% completely correct. But you loved I it. I still liked it, though. I knew it. <laughs> I still had fun with it. I mean, this does start tying into the whole Jinx stuff, um, where, again, up to this point, I wouldn't say I really disliked Jinx. Her dialogue's been pretty awful, but I haven't really hated her. But this is when she kind of starts becoming pretty bad. Like, the dialogue is awful, and twice she just becomes a damsel in distress, and it's tedious. Mm. Um, so we have to see her tied onto the table rather than Bond, which is what Goldfinger did. But I guess Halle Berry, it would have been better if it was Harry Berry on that table, I guess. <laughs> Being like, yo mama, Goldfinger. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh no. Yo mama. <laughs> I just, oh, there, there's something there about uh, Operation, instead of Operation Grand Slam, Operation Yo Mama. Yo mama. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just like I know it's not one to one, but yeah, this is where her dialogue gets bad, and she does this whole. I the the moments I dislike Jinx the most is when she is just the damsel in distress. As bad as her dialogue can be, this is the stuff that kind of winds me up a bit, and I I just don't like the setup. But I think the fight itself is fun enough. Again, you are completely correct. Like if the lasers were off, doesn't really change much. But I don't know. It's fun enough. And silly enough, I actually had a decent time with it. But mm. but you are correct. There's a ton of potential here that they kind of didn't really go into or, or realise at all. No, just lasers are cool. Put them on screen. Get them blinging around like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. But uh, after that, it's all calmed down a bit. And Bond goes to let Jinx out of this table and uh, that's where we learn that um, well I think he says oh CIA and she goes no uh, NSA so she's an NSA agent and uh, they're on the same side they're both after Zhao and now you might have to explain this to me but Bond with the whole 
Zhao in the machine thing, Bond makes a connection to Korean. I guess there's some of that from before anyway, like the getting getting the gist of it. But it's just in this line, I was like, well, what? how did Bond make that like jump to, oh, well, that means that they must have had another machine here. The boss is Korean. Like, was I just missing something there? Not really. I think he takes the jump forward. Like, he knows what's happening. That gets spelled out in the next scene. And I think this is just him realizing it without Mm. it getting fully explained to the audience. So, I mean, the breadcrumbs are pretty aggressive up to this point. So you might have already figured it out anyway. But I think this is just Bond realizing that, that, oh, if Zhao is here, then that means that, like, yeah, I think he figures out what what is going on with Graves for real. If Zhao is connected to Graves and he knows that for sure because Graves is the one funding this and he knows this technology exists and that Graves owns that technology, I think he's just putting it together in his head. So we then get the explanation in a minute's time. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? That minute. Yeah, just a little bit clunky to me, but that could be me just like sort of missing some things now. (laughs) Um, But yeah, in order to escape the room, as Tom pointed out, it was Mr. Kill using his handprint. So Bond goes to, says, let's move the body over. And Jinx is just, nap, don't worry. And she lasers it off instead, lasers off his arm and uh, just uses a severed arm the handprint and then just casually tosses it aside when they're done and uh, they're ready to leave she's she's not wasting any time jinx oh no 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 um but yeah bond says uh to oh yeah bond is gonna go and um find zhao jinx wants to go call for backup but bond says can you go get frost before you do so because she's mi6 so that's where um jinx is gonna head to and we then cut to uh, Graves' office where he was having all the glove stuff going on and he enters the room and we see that Bond is there on the, on the sofa at the end. He was there ready and waiting for him, holding him at gunpoint and uh, we, get the line of the, we get the name of the film in here pretty well, I think. It says, so you live to die another day, Colonel. And then, oh, that's, yeah, that's the big reveal. As if him speaking Korean and talking about, but yeah, it's, it was pretty obvious, but yeah, there it is. And, it's uh, almost like delivered in a way that makes me think that they actually wrote the line first and then decided that should be the name of the film. And maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but it doesn't feel like they forced this line in. I actually think it's surprisingly natural for what this line is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, die, die another day, that's just, I, I guess all of them are just words, but <laughs> compared to the world <laughs> is not enough. Yeah, that's true. Compared to the world is not enough. Someone could use the the words die another day more naturally, I suppose, yeah. But I mean, like, even if we go all the way back to you only live twice, you know, they they go to Blofeld and he's like, you only live twice, 007. Like, it's, that was the start of this. This almost feels like a little bit more natural, which uh, I, I kind of like. But obviously you do know it's the name, so it stands out. But I do feel like maybe they actually wrote this line first based on these characters and then said, oh, actually, that works quite well, die another day. Let's let's shove that in. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I would not be surprised. So, yeah, this is actually Colonel Moon that we saw in the pre-title sequence. And he's had... Who? 
Colonel Moon, not General oh, right. Moon. Colonel Moon. Rhino. And uh, he's had... <laughs> I won. No, wait. Um, he's had the gene therapy stuff, and that's why he now looks like Graves. And he's been toying Bond along the whole time, right under his nose sort of thing. And he starts to talk about the, the process of, of uh, transforming and how Bond left such a, a lasting impression back in North Korea that uh, Graves modelled his new face on Bond's as Tom was saying, like this is this is like a kind of alternate reality bond, one not tied to MI6, maybe. Uh, but yeah, he says, you know, the unjustifiable swagger, uh, the crass quips, that sort of stuff. So kind of makes sense. Like, yeah, you could see that guy as a, a very nasty bond. All makes total sense. Yeah, I do almost wish like they didn't 100% point that out and you were yeah. kind of left to do that yourself. But I also get why they did. Um, so... I don't mind it too much, but I do wish that was kind of left for the audience to figure out. Well, we've had villains before that have almost been... They've, all, they've admired Bond uh, in like a twisted way. They're impressed by him and some some of them want him to join their side sort of thing. And this is just a kind of a different different way of doing that where the villain actually was so impressed by, by Bond who wants to actually copy his style. So I, I like that as a, as a as an idea. But yeah, you're right, maybe... I don't know. Maybe it could have been better without it or not. Maybe just let it, let it say more than it actually does in some ways. Um, yeah, and I think just speaking on this twist, because we're about to get another reveal very shortly, uh, this is something I used to really hate, and before re-watching this film again, I would always look back on it. I was like, oh yeah, that really stupid one where, really stupid villain where a Korean turns into like a British dude. Like, that's really dumb. Uh, I actually didn't mind it <laughs> watching it again. I don't know why. I don't know if it's just this effect of this film on me, I suppose. But yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. But I actually kind of think it works in its own twisted way. It's not something you can ever take seriously. But I think the way that the actor for Graves plays it works. And I think actually the characterization of Colonel Moon in the opening bit also kind of works. It's all, it's so kind of hammy and cheesy in the way it does it. Now, this is, again, another plot point that in another Bond film, stupid, no, get rid, awful. But in this one, I think it works. So something that I normally would have looked back and saying that villain is bad because of how dumb the backstory is, re-watching it, I was actually like, that part's fine. I'm actually okay with it. Yeah, I didn't mind it either. I didn't mind that idea of him turning into Graves at all. We've had slightly similar things i guess thunderball again actually lots of links to thunderball with the guy having plastic surgery to look like the pilot uh and this is just an ex- extension of that just going a little bit more all in and a bit crazier with like a total uh appearance change and honestly like, we've had invisible cars i've had all sorts i'm not going to question a dna therapy thing cloning blofeld as well yeah exactly exactly the doctor creepy doctor is very good at getting that orphan dna so I'm not going to question his his skill there. Well, he's no, an artist. Sorry. He's an artist. He's a dead artist. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, with that, Frost walks in. Frost walks in, um, which Bond is pleased about. She starts by pointing her gun at Graves, and that triggers Graves to ask Bond if he ever found out who actually betrayed him back in North Korea all the, uh, with that sort of stuff. And... Uh, and says that after all that time, he never thought to look 
in your own organization inside MI6 because that's where Frost turns and points her gun at Bond instead. She was the mole. What? No. Yes. Oh, okay. Right. Yes, she was the mole. So the reason why I was a bit confused earlier, like way at the beginning of the podcast, I just presumed that they had not known each other very long. But well, th- this is the confusing part. And I was thinking about this, you know, three in the morning, laying awake at night in bed. Oh. Uh, because <laughs> the timeline in this film, I don't quite understand. Mm. Because Bond gets betrayed and is captured and then spend, and this is when Moon supposedly dies. And then it takes 14 months for Bond to get out. But then three, no, like a year before that, uh, a year after, a year before he gets out is when Graves then reveals himself. So I'm assuming that Moon then spends two months in this therapy and makes the transformation. Um, why Zhao doesn't do that straight away, I don't know. That's a bit strange. Uh, but then I guess in terms of when did Frost try to win that medal, because she's been on the case for three months. But I'm assuming that even though she's been on it for three months, she didn't betray MI6 three months ago. She betrayed it before the events of the opening sequence. Mm. So actually she must have aligned herself with Moon before he became Graves. Yes. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And I guess that links back to when, which Olympics was it? <laughs> oh, Sydney, wasn't it? Sydney. Was it Sydney? So, so she, that was two. Madonna said Sydney. Thank you, Madonna. She's so helpful. So helpful. So that was 2000, wasn't it? So that would. <laughs> wait a so minute. I guess that does line up. <laughs> does it? Well, yeah. So in, oh, if that we're assuming just this before. film takes place in 2002, <laughs> but I guess it means that what part of the film takes place in 2002. I would assume that when Bond is released, that's in 2002. Two years ago at the Sydney Olympics, Colonel Moon as himself then meets up with her, helps her win. She then portrays MI6 while still working for MI6 or, you know, became an MI6 agent after that. And then the offense of the opening sequence happens. He spends two months transforming Oh, they obviously they're still they're already working together because of what happens in Sydney in two thousand, and then that's when the betrayal happens and the event of the films kick off. I can guarantee to you this is the most discussion anyone has ever done about Die Another Day timeline. Well, I think it works though. I think I was a bit unsure about it, but I actually think it does fit. I guess so. I kind of wish I didn't need to do that though, but but I guess this is a podcast where we're talking about we need to go all in. So. Yeah, your average moviegoer doesn't really need to care about this <laughs> level of backstory. But hey, if it all checks out, it all checks out. I mean, we did just have a scene where, like, this is a definitely a classic movie action scene because it's completely stupid that she comes in and points the gun at Graves. <laughs> like, did Graves text her saying, "Oh, this is going to be great. We're going to mess with Bond. You come oh. in and you, no, you pretend, <laughs> pretend oh, to be yeah. his mate, and then turn the gun." And then he'll be like, whoa, we'll get him. <laughs> P.S. What do you want for dinner tonight? <laughs> yeah, you hungry? What are we, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, you're right. That is really stupid if you think about it. But no, Graves is relishing this moment. When when uh, Frost reveals her, her true identity and that she was the mole, he's loving it. You know, That's when he says she was right under your nose the whole time. And Bond 
he has his gun still and he just goes to shoot her like right nice. there and then just straight away um but the gun's empty the gun's not loaded oh or or sabotaged in some way because that's that was the whole thing about making such a point of it in bed is that whilst he was sleeping she must have done something to it and uh so he's he's a little bit stuck uh, but yeah this is where you learn that graves uh, won over frost by sabotaging her opponent in the olympic fencing competition and is now using you know, her mind her her brains her body her sex all that sort of stuff and uh bond says that although they can kill him there'll be others after him meaning jinx though we do see her go into the room to try and find frost as bond told her to do and then she just gets locked in so she's not doing too well either <laughs> and uh back in the office frost gets bond to hand over his watch over the, like, the toys the gadgets because she knows she knows what's what's up with them and as he's doing that he says something he gives a little quip to Zhao. he says he... um i've missed your sparkling personality because mm. of the diamonds in his face. the diamonds and he gets punched like Zhao punches him in the stomach so i assumed that that was on purpose to purposely get on the floor um because when he's on the ground the, the floor of this office is all glass. And so just as Frost is about to shoot Bond, he's wearing his ring, his activate his sonic ring, and activates that. So all the glass shatters and he falls down into the jungly bio area below. So Bond and Frost, and I want to say Graves as well, they've all like dropped down onto like this the jungle floor. And Bond, because he knows what has happened, he just sprints. It's another scene where Piers Brosnan's Bond just sprints, just the old arms up, straight arms and hands yeah. doing his sprinting. He loves it. Very Tom Cruise run, come to yeah. think of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he does it quite a lot, so we get another one in here. So they're shooting at him, but he's just like running full sprint. And he gets to the wire that Jinx used to enter the building. So Jinx came down with this wire, this like electronic wire that allowed her to go quite a long distance down to the ground and bond saw that earlier i believe so he's now he just runs to it attaches himself pulls it up he goes shooting up to the top um he then uses that to run down the side of the building as well i don't know if we can call that a tomorrow never dies reference that's probably a bit generous oh i'll I'll give it to it i'll give it nice yes i got one (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so bond runs down the building uh and disconnects and he sees the the bullet car the the rocket car whatever you want to call it the one that graves was driving earlier to try and beat like the the speed record so he just sprints and runs into it and zhao sees him go so orders the guards to go and kill him and bond shoots off in the speed car and we go back to graves in the office and he says ah this is fine it's all about the threat of the kill or the threat of the kill is in the chase so he orders the Korean people that we saw before, and these are actually Korean generals, the ones who are at the Icarus showcase. So he shows, brings them into the room, and then he's saying, oh, I promised you uh, to show you a true demonstration of the power of Icarus. So he uses the little control panel to use Icarus to shoot a sunbeam down into the ice. And he's like, oh, we'll... It's, uh, it's going to lock onto his heat signature and it's going to lock into Bond and will chase him down. So we see a giant sunbeam shoot down and start chasing Bond, which 
I don't want to think about this stuff too much. Because my biggest problem with this is like, how does a sunbeam pick up a heat signature when there's literally an intense heat source right next to him? So how can it possibly distinguish the two? But let's not think about that too much. No, no. I think that's for another podcast. That's for the Icarus podcast. Nice. Okay, I I won't be there for that though. So oh oh really? I can reschedule if you want. No no no. You're busy. We're busy. Everyone's busy. Okay, fine. Your loss. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, but yeah, so the the giant beam is coming down, and this is all obviously CGI and stuff. Like we are just seeing a giant, intense. Like there's a sound that goes with it as well. Like there's like there's this intense sound and this giant sunbeam. It's just chasing Bond. Uh, so Bond is going super quick to try and get away. We get a, a little moment where the engineer dude goes up to Graves and is like, oh, boss, Bond beat your time. And he just snarls at him. <laughs> that was quite nice. Um, but Bond sees a cliff edge. So he's trying to escape from the sunbeam. He sees a cliff edge. So he fires like a hook at the back of it. So there's like a hook on this long wire behind this car or this rocket car thing. So he fires that off and he goes off the edge. And after he goes off the edge, the hook grabs onto the snow or the ice on top and it snaps the car back onto the cliff and i have to say there's a lot of things you can criticize with the cgi on this one this bit made me laugh because they actually did do model work it seems and it looks terrible oh it looks yeah this might be one of the worst shots this actually might be worse than the shots coming after this because i think so at least cgi into cgi mess it all flows Whereas, as you say, that is a model shot, and it it's clear that they like the scale of it just didn't work. So they the only thing they could do was slow it down, and it's terrible. I don't know how that made it into the final cut. Yeah, you just get no sense of the weight or the scale of things. It just clearly is a model of a little car on a cliff. It's so cute, almost. I don't understand that because they've done model stuff amazingly well in previous yeah. films it's just really dropped the ball dropped the dropped the car with this one yeah i think it's the the fact that it's all this ice doesn't help i don't think and i think it's like the scale of these cars in the motion normally it's supposed to be something like that's quite big but this one's just like a tiny little car snapping against the wall i think it was like really naive to think they could pull something like that off mm. so yeah so bond is now hanging on the cliff in this car so he starts climbing out he he gets the parachute from the back of the car and then he also like gets rid of the door removes that and the hook slips a bit so he starts falling down and graves decides because the sunbeam is waiting for him at this point Uh, it's just waiting at the top so graves decides like oh i'm going to use the controls of icarus to just cut off the side of the cliff so instead of going forward he just cuts off this edge of the cliff which starts uh it's all like starts dropping down um so we see bond attaching the metal door to his feet as this giant ice cliff completely drops into the ocean and we get a line from graves which is global warming it's a terrible thing (laughs) that's a very good impression i've said that a few times that was actually legit a good impression (laughs) oh cool (laughs) you you. could you could pass you could although actually i think um this is minor tangent but uh Toby Stevens actually did come back to do uh, Graves in uh, 007 Legends, so hmm. <laughs> I don't think you need to. He'll do it. He needs the work, maybe. I don't know. Mate, I hope he's doing all right. I think I quite like him in this film, so yeah, I hope he's okay. Yeah. 
yeah, so he does that line to the generals. They're all impressed. Uh, but we cut back to Bond and his surfing on the water. Oh, that it's sounds a, cool. That is cool. He's on a metal door parachute and it's a giant wave and we see all the little big music going on, a very action-y. Bond is surfing and jumping up on knees and it's all very chaotic and stuff and uh, it looks fake. It looks really... um, It's all, it's all CGI. It's um, 100% CGI. 100%. Sorry. I'm sorry, everyone. But I believed in Pierce. We, are, we have now reached the... One of our final stops. Oh yeah, we have this is pure CGI station. I, I can understand if if this is where you get off. This fine. is like this is a this is a stop where it's not like a nice slow pull into the station. This is like hard brakes on the stop. Like yeah. you'll be thrown out of your seat. Are you sure? And also, like <laughs> the. <laughs> The the station only covers like half the train the train carriages, so you got to like run down. There's like eight, and you got to run to like four, four coaches. Yeah. yeah, only the front four coaches depart here, and you got to run <laughs> to get off. But oh. to be fair, and this is something I fall quite a bit in this film. I expected worse. Yeah, I think it doesn't look good. And I think doing a pure CGI scene like this is ridiculous in 2002. I was somewhat expecting worse. I think for me, it's just the fact that I was expecting it at all. Just really, I, I, I this is another one of those things where I, I knew it was bad, but I didn't really care. Um, I knew it was coming. Everyone talks about it. It does look bad, but you just, and I think there is an element of that as well. I don't, I don't think it looked I thought there were more scenes with Pierce side on. I think that's one of the worst shots hmm. is not even the full CGI one, but where he is green screened on. And actually there's not. So it, it's not as bad as maybe I remembered it being. And I think actually the one thing I wrote in my notes is that at least the music's good. I like the music in this scene. So there's something, there's a silver lining for me. Yeah. I've, I think the fact that it's all kind of CGI kind of helps like, doesn't look great but it's not like cgi on top of real life pretending to be the same thing this is all just kind of cgi so to me that massively helped i think one of the things that and I, we haven't talked about this yet where we do get it with pierce Brosnan, where he is a bit older and i don't think he looks terrible but for all the stuff they make him do and for all these like cgi shots when they do cut back to him and his face doing this stuff because he is a bit older I think that's part of what makes these stand out and not look great. That, you know, you talked about it with the sword fight where he looks like he's grimacing and stuff. I think he is kind of struggling across the film to do some of this stuff. And mm. it means like with this scene, when you do cut to him up close, you know, you don't really buy it in the same way that like with the later Roger Moore films, you don't buy all the stuff that they're clearly getting the stuntman to do. Yeah. But rather than just having like a stuntman do it and doing some face shots, instead we get like, a ton of CGI and CGI bond. And then we cut to Pierce holding it, grimacing. And I think that actually makes it worse. And maybe if it was a younger Pierce Brosnan, maybe he actually could have sold some of this a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I, I just, but I also just think they could have, they could have put more effort into this. They could have tried to do more things. They could have tried to do different things, but I do think the concept alone is just too much anyway. Like the idea of Bond on this tsunami, it's it's they just had to go so big 
so ludicrous. And I know that by this point in the film, you should be used to it, but it's just, I still think it was too much. Just too much. And I think most people would agree with that, Joe, that this was too much. I'm glad. I'm glad. I didn't really hate it, but I do agree that it's a very off scene and doesn't look great. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm not going to defend it, but I didn't watch it and like grimace or anything. I've, it is what it is, I guess. Pretty much. Um, So yeah, so the visuals is just him bouncing off all these waves with this ice and trying to get away. But it ends with him seeing like the ice land for, you know, actual proper ice that you could land on. So he like launches himself up. And again, we get another kind of awkward shot where Pierce has to like lunge forward to prepare himself. Um, So he lunges forward and he, he lands on the ice and you get a nice little shot at the end of Bond on the parachute landing, I guess, to try and set it. So he's all okay. Folks, he made it out of there. That was a very Roger Moore shot, actually. That landing one. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, So we now go back to Bond's room inside the Ice Palace. And Zhao and Frost are there and see Jinx. And as soon as they open the door, Jinx just kicks Zhao, which I thought was quite funny. (laughs) Um, uh, Just to see Zhao just be a little bit of a joke at this point. (laughs) They even Jinx kicks um, him down. And I didn't write any of this dialogue down. It's more bad dialogue uh, between Jinx and Frost. And we haven't really talked about Frost yet, but I actually really dislike Frost in this film. And I think she's one of the worst, if not the worst character in the entire film. And I think a lot of it is kind of the acting and the dialogue. Like, so she's the whole point in her is that initially she is, you know, she's an MI6 agent, but she's acting. So her chemistry with Bond is really awkward and weird, but it gets explained that, oh, she's acting because she needs to sleep with Bond and keep her cover and stuff. So she's really awkward and strange with some of that stuff. But now that she's just full, I'm evil, like she just kind of gets the jinx treatment where her dialogue is just bad. And I think Rosamund Pike, who has proven she can do a lot of great acting in future roles, like she became quite successful after this film uh but in this one incredibly off and actually she bothers me more than jinx in a lot of scenes uh it's tricky because i would agree i I think acting wise she's not great i don't really know what i don't you say that she's been very successful i actually don't really know what else she's been in to be honest the big one was that uh ben affleck film what was it called i'm gonna look it up It was really good. Oh, why is it not coming up? Why is it not coming up? I want to say it's like Girl Gone or something. Oh, Gone, Gone Girl. Girl. Oh, yeah. I recognize the name. I didn't... Okay. It's a very good yeah. film. She's very good in it. She was also in Johnny English Reborn. Fun fact. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another Bond girl. <laughs> um, yeah, like, I'm sh- yeah, I'm sure, sure she's a very good actress. Maybe just very, very early on in her career or something like that. But also... It doesn't help that the character that she's playing is meant to have literally this frosty demeanor. And so you don't, she doesn't really get much to do with that. I mean, there's a bit where she's pretending to make out with Bond to, to stay in disguise, but she's just kind of bland. And I think when she goes evil, she's also still quite bland. So, yeah, I would, I, I would probably agree with you that I think Jinx is more. She's at least more interesting than uh, than Frost, 
perhaps, I mean, still lesser of two evils, maybe is a better way of putting it. Yeah, like Jinx has more direct bad lines, like the Your Mama stuff. But I feel like Frost is more consistently just kind of awful. Like, just kind of doesn't really work. And I kind of wish that they found a better direction for her and the way that her character is portrayed. Mm. Like, if she went super hammy, I'll be all up for that. Or if she was more cold and calculated, I'll be up for that as well. But as it kind of stands, I just find her a bit irritating and annoying. And yeah, she's a, you know, didn't like her. And actually, she, yeah, one of the worst characters in the film for me. Mm. Um, so Frost then, yeah, there's some back and forth here. It's terrible. Uh, Frost says, oh, that's a nice red leather suit. I hope it doesn't shrink when it gets wet. What? Whatever that means. I guess... Yeah, I guess it might shrink and she's going to drown. So we go back to Bond. (laughs) Yeah, so so Jinx is logged in the room again, which was a great scene, guys. Very helpful. Um, And we see Bond using, like, the parachute to, like, knock a man off off a a snowmobile. So he, like, drags it across, like, a wire, and then the guy gets knocked off and he takes the snowmobile because he just has to head back to the palace. So... Yeah, a couple of short scenes of him doing that on the snowmobile. And he sees the plane go overhead. And we cut to Zhao inside the Ice Palace, telling his goons, oh, we have a, one hour to wrap this up. We've got to wrap this up. And this is... And Bond sneaking into the palace, this is where I think the pacing takes a giant hit. Uh, because we've literally spent a lot of time in the palace. We had a big old action sequence. A lot of stuff has happened. And now we literally are seeing Bond sneaking back into the palace to then, well, leave the palace to then do another action scene. And this is, for me, where I think the pacing of the film, which was pretty damn good up to now, actually takes a hit because we're about to do another big chunk of stuff in Iceland, which doesn't really connect together in a in a way that works. They really wanted to get their money's worth out of that set. Yeah. That must be it, right? Like, why would they have any other reason to stay in Iceland? Yeah, I think there's good stuff coming up. There's stuff I really like coming up, but the pacing is what the the issue is, the way it's all connected together. You are just, as you say, it's one set. It's it's either like the ice palace or the ice nearby, and you just jump between those for like yeah. 40 minutes. And it's just like, oh, that's... Could have cut that down or would have mm. liked that to be cut down. It's just quite awkwardly the way it's put together. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, Bond sneaks back in or he uses his remote control which is like a little i don't know pen thing almost i don't know uh, to move the fanish near him because his car's still there and he gets into the car and we see zhao is nearby looking around but doesn't see the car uh, so bond is using the raid like a uh, thermal imaging like radar i guess i didn't spell the word correctly so i don't remember uh, but some sort of thermal imaging to try and find jinx so he knows jinx is in there so he's trying to find where she is um, but then, while he's doing this, a man in a snowmobile just smashes into the back of his car, because <laughs> it's invisible, and goes flying over the top and lands. And ah. this is where Zhao sees this and orders his units to come in, because he can now see that Bond is there, or somebody is there, because the snowmobile crashed into nothing. All that training, years of MI6 training, you didn't see that snowmobile coming. No. It's always the little things you you miss out. <laughs> I don't know. It made me laugh. I'll yeah. give it another pass. I like how Bond is legitimately caught off guard by that as well. I was like, oh, oh, damn. Oh. Should have parked it, really. <laughs> Not just sat here. 
Because he's taking off his jumper or something, and then he just gets caught, caught out. Yeah, not very Bond-like. No. So yeah, with that, with Zhao now seeing uh, Bond, um, he on on the thermal imaging in his car, he shoots at it. I don't. Has he got a BMW? The green one. It's is a it Jaguar. The Jag. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. It's very nice. And I like it. Immediately, like by shooting it breaks the invisibility <laughs> functionality of it. And I got to admit, that really annoyed me. Um, it's clearly just because they were like, all oh, right, we don't want this whole chase and have to do invisibility CGI stuff. But it's like, well, why? I know they've used it a couple of times and they're going to use it again. But none of this chase has any like gimmick around that. And I just think like, why? Well, I know why. But yeah, but do it. Like it was, if you're going to have that car that does that, make the effort. It really bothered me. Um, so yeah, it's it's them two driving around on uh, on the frozen lake, like a big patch of ice, and it's just uh, a car chase to show off all the gadgets in in this car. Aside from the invisibility one, so um, you've got Bond uh, using the the torpedo, the missiles, and the tire spikes, I think, show, make make a appearance as well. Um, at one point, I think Zhao is like locking on to Bond uh, onto the Aston Martin with some sort of missile, and then how does it, how does the car get flipped? That's what I forgot. So yeah, there's a little bit of like Bond handbrakes turn and they shoot missiles at each other, then he turns back. But I think Zhao actually does hit Bond almost. It's just like hits maybe his wheel and that missile causes the car to flip. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. Because all I remember is the car is upside down and Bond opens up the uh, the sunroof. The roof opens up and just as the Aston's about to get hit by another missile, Bond triggers the ejector seat, which causes the car to flip back up and dodge out of the way. So... That stuff I like. Like, give me all that stuff. It's it's very um, uh, living daylights, just showing gadget after gadget and basically getting them out of the way. I think another point he uses all the little um, uh, target seeking things to shoot down more missiles or torpedoes or whatever. And I, I don't mind all that. I just wish that they had had something with the invisibility in there. I'm going to keep on moaning about that just because I I think it's a, such a missed trick. I guess so. I think this is so good, though. I, I really do have a ton of fun with this. It's, you know, you got some more naughty zoom-ins and zoom-outs and stuff, which I'm not... I, I, I don't really dislike because they're just so over the top that <laughs> you can't miss them. But I don't know, seeing an Aston Martin and this Jaguar chasing it, like basically two Bond cars going up against each other, it's awesome. And I think that's what I personally focus on. I don't really think about the fanish stuff here i just kind of focus on like yeah two people using bond cars to try and take each other out and the back and forth and that shot where he uses the ejector seat to spin the car and the missile goes past awesome that's like one of my favorite like chase moments ever in any bond film i i was again it's a shame that the pacing of the film as a whole takes a hit here because it does kind of bring this scene down a bit for me but i think as a standalone chase scene it's so much fun I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I liked... I did like the location of it as well. I think it's quite cool to just have... Because usually in a lot of 
Bond chases. It'll be you know, going around bends, going through alleyways or streets or whatever. And this is just two cars on a big patch of ice, nothing to hide behind, no cover. I guess that's maybe why the invisibility stuff wouldn't have worked very well anyway, because it's like, <laughs> what are you going to do in a big <laughs> in a big patch? But um, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I guess, man, I don't know. Something about it I still didn't love, though. But anyway, um, we see on back on the plane, the plane that uh, Graves is in, um, he is using his big remote control interface for the Icarus satellite, the one that the nerdy engineer guy made. And uh, he says, time to give the American her bath. Not not such a great line, but um, he loads up the interface and turns on the Icarus beam directly onto the palace, which obviously starts to melt it. And so Jinx is still trapped inside and everything starts to melt and she's trying to break down the wall, but not really getting very far. Bond uh, spots the palace starting to melt in the distance and so heads towards it. And there's there's like outside the entrance, there's a couple guards on snowmobiles that start shooting at Bond. He just plows straight through them. They go flying. Yeah, <laughs> two. I don't. I didn't really get the point of why they're even there, but I thought it's funny the way they bounced off anyway. <laughs> yeah, but he just uh, smashes straight through into the palace. Zhao is still on his tail, um, and we're kind of getting the second section now. We've had that bit. I was just saying about in the big open bit. You've now got that bit of a car chase where it's all going around bends and stuff because these two, they drive around this TARDIS ice palace by the looks of it. This place is huge on the inside. They're just going around bend after bend and floor after floor. Um, All very thankfully uh, just wide enough for cars to fit through as well. So as it's all starting to collapse, Jinx is starting to get submerged, starting to drown. Bond in the Aston reaches uh, a dead end or at least a spot quite high up where he can't go any further. And Zhao is right behind him. And it looks as though Zhao is about to... He gets out these big and like spiky things on the front of the car and is about to sort of ram Bond off, off the edge down below. So in great timing, the invisibility functionality on Bond's car works just in the nick of time. So he turns it back on and also activates the tire spikes, the traction, and goes invisible. So, yeah, Zhao goes to ram him, but hey, the car's not there. He flies straight through and down into the ice and the lake below because Bond turns back on uh, and he's actually driven up the side of the wall out of the way. So, hey, they, you know, they did use it there. Credit where it's due, they did use it a little bit, so I can't get too mad. Um, so yeah, Bond, uh, Zhao is now like in the water. He gets out the car, um, and is swimming to the surface. Bond is driving back down. He, on his way down, he shoots a massive chandelier that just conveniently is right above Zhao and that falls down and crushes him and kind of churns all the water as it falls on him. It's kind of a similar shot to, uh, Alex. Or Alec, sorry, um, with the satellite falling on him. But yeah, he gets crushed by the chandelier, all the water churns up and turns red, and that's the end of Zhao. I thought that was really good. I think that's really good death. Good death. <laughs> like the guy who had all the diamonds in his face gets crushed by the chandelier. That's, oh, that's perfect. It's poetic. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And yeah, I've, yeah. Like, Sal isn't really that much of a henchman when at the end of the day, I think the henchmen in this film are a little bit confused because you got Mr. Kim and Zhao, but I still quite like Zhao's actor and he's a weird looking guy with diamonds in his face. Yeah. And I think it was fun having this big chase and yeah, I love how like casually Bond shoots the chandelier as well. It reminds me of In the World It's Not Enough where Bond shoots the lock to free M. He just like pops out the window of the car, shoot the chandelier and drive off. <laughs> <laughs> which causes it all to, to land and kill him. It's very casual, which I thought was quite cool. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, I didn't mind Zhao either. I think, um, as you say, very, very memorable visually with all the diamonds and stuff and the, the bald head and the white skin. I guess he didn't really do too much in the film, but I, I he was in there enough. And I'm, Joe, you know what I've, you say about Mr. Kill, I'd already forgotten about Mr. Kill. He sucks. I'd much rather have Zhao than him. Um, yeah and i think you know i've criticized the pacing of this bit i like that now all the henchmen are out the way (laughs) it's uh it sets up the finale a little bit better because after this iceland bit we're going to the finale so i like that mr kill was killed in that laser scene and i like that zao kind of gets this death here to cap off iceland so we're not like i wonder what zao is up to for the next bit Mm. yeah that's true well there's how would you define frost um, something I don't, I don't, she's, <laughs> she's yeah she's in it for sure yeah she's in it anyway uh with Zhao out of the way bond carries on driving and smashes into the room that jinx is in uh that she's drowning in and uses the ring to smash his windshield and pull her through and then he's like launches out of the wall of the ice palace and carries her to a sort of bubbling hot spring that's very close by and you know starts to give a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and of course it works she's fine everyone don't worry jinx isn't dead she's she's all good she's good enough to even give a quick quick little bit of sass what took what took you so long she says after nearly dying and then <laughs> laughing about it she's all right uh and then they bond looks up and sees the plane fly off so graves is out of there he's gone Hmm. I do like kind of like this section of the film, but as I already said, you know, it feels a little bit tedious due to the pacing of this overall Iceland section, and we are getting quite close to the end of the film as well. Uh, but something that I don't really like, and I think it's something you didn't really touch on too much, is that throughout a lot of this, we are cutting to Jinx drowning. Like, yeah. They keep cutting back to Jinx in the room trying to escape. She doesn't escape. And then we keep cutting back to like, oh, now the water's starting to fill up. But then, oh, she's about to start drowning. Oh, oh, now she is drowning. Like they keep doing that. And they really want to set it as, oh, this, the tension from this is all about Bond trying to find her in time. It's not really about the Ice Palace melting at all. It's actually all about Bond being able to rescue Jinx before she drowns. And I don't really like that. Like I said before... I don't like Jinx when she's just the pure damsel in distress and it happens twice in Iceland and I think it does bring it down. Overall, I still actually enjoy this section of the film. I think the the chase outside is good and even inside, even though it's very clearly a set, like so clearly a set, like I don't buy this as a melting ice palace. It just looks like a wet set where there's <laughs> water everywhere. I still think it looks kind of good. Um so this thing definitely have problems and things I'm not super happy about it, but there was enough good for it 
for me to enjoy it. It's just, yeah, it's uh, definitely flawed, um, this bit. Yeah, I, I like I say, by this point, the Ice Palace stuff, I was kind of getting checked out. I, I just, well, I mean, we'll talk about more at the end, but I was so, I was getting really sad because I was really... I enjoyed the start of this film so much and then I was just slowly like going down and down and down in terms of mood. But we're not there yet. So, um, yeah, Bond spotted the, the plane fly off and we're then changing the location entirely. Finally, we are leaving that damn ice palace because uh, we're going to the demilitarized zone. We're going to a US command base um, where Bond and Jinx are, are being taken down um, into a command bunker. Um Oh, you know, there's troops everywhere and everything, and they're going down there. They meet Robinson. He's here, and he's in his film quite a lot, actually, <laughs> for being that sort of character. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, Robinson's there to give a quick brief about what's going on, and uh, they've spotted that there are 80,000 North Korean troops that are being mobilized and near the border, and they think that they're they're building up, ready to invade the South, South Korea. So uh, that's why, as they go further into the bunker, there's M. There's also, what's his name again? Falco. Falco. Falco's there uh, in this, yeah, computer screens everywhere. It's like a command hub. And Falco says that they've launched a missile, an ASAT missile at the Icarus satellite to destroy it. But uh, because Graves, they've, they've spotted Graves' plane and he's in the middle of uh, the North Korean, uh, North Korean air base, so they're right where they can't touch him. So, uh, and I would also... I think Falco says that they've had no, uh, they've had instructions for no uh, infiltrations into North Korea, but um, M wants to send Bond. Obviously, he's her best man, and so if Bond is going, Falco says, "Well, we're not leaving this to the Brits." So Jinx, you go with him too, and uh, they're off together to um, to go sneak into North Korea once again, and to do yeah. that. Pretty Sorry. yeah, pretty quick scene really. Uh, just to kind of get some a lot of plot there, but it's it's more that like back and forth, like the British intelligence agents against the US one, and there's a little bit of back and forth there. It doesn't really go anywhere at the end of the day, um, but yeah, it's a little bit of back and forth. They do also say that Bond is talking about General Moon, the dad, saying, "Well, he doesn't want a war," which is kind of in hinted at the start of it. But they explain, "Oh, there's been a coup." So actually, the General Moon is no longer in charge, which is why somebody's now going ahead in North Korea to start a war with South Korea and invade. Oh, okay. I completely missed that. But that does make sense. Um, So yeah, to get to North Korea, Bond and Jinx are dropped from a plane. And they're not just literally dropped. That'd be a bit harsh. (laughs) They've got these sort of mini... Planes? I don't, I don't know what they are. Like yeah, bodies. they're just wings. But yeah, I think like... Falco calls them switchblades. But switchblades. Oh. I don't know why. Okay, well they go down on some switchblades, and after a certain point, they just parachute down uh, to nearby where the airbase that Graves is at. And we also see the uh, the missile that Falco mentioned that the the US have sent to destroy the satellite, and it's, it's spotted by. The North Koreans and by Graves, and so they just turn on the beam and aim it directly at the missile. So you, yeah, you just see in space this missile heading towards it, big beam on it, and it just burns up and explodes. And then you see all the U.S. generals are, are watching this back at the the command bunker, and 
pretty embarrassing, gotta say. It just blows up a completely, completely failed plan. But I'd say completely failed. I don't know. Obviously, they look very disappointed at this, but my question was, surely they could just aim two missiles from different yeah. directions. Or you could have shot at it when it started firing its beam later. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if they ever addressed like, oh my god, we need send another one. I don't think they do. But we only had one. <laughs> we only got one missile. Should have to... bought two. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> Silly Falco, honestly. <laughs> yeah, after that embarrassment, uh, we see Bond and Jinx are outside the airbase. It's all at night. They're all suited up in their combat gear. And they're spying on uh, Graves' plane because it's all being loaded up, ready to take off. And Bond is there with the rifle. Jinx is there giving him instructions, you know, windage and all that sort of stuff. And Bond is uh, trying to get a, a clear shot of Graves as he's, as he's getting onto the plane. But I think just at the last second, uh, Frost walks in front and there's also a Jeep that walks past, uh, that drives past. So Bond can't can't get a shot of him, so they have to go to plan B, which is to just get onto the plane itself. So they start cutting through the wire fence. Very hastily as well. It's quite <laughs> I was a bit stressed at this bit, honestly. Like we talk about tension with saving saving jinx. This was a bit I was getting stressed at. Like, quickly, cut it cut it faster. Yeah, like there's no gadget here. Bond and them are just using wire cutters, but they have yeah. to do it bit by bit. So like tick tick click, tick tick. Click, click. Like very slowly doing it. Well it's like, come on, oh, I missed the plane. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's true. So they do get through and they run up alongside the wheels and they eventually climb on board, like into the landing mechanism, just as the plane starts to take off. So, yeah, so that's like, obviously you went through that quite quick, but something that is quite nice about this part of the film is that they do just get you to the finale. Like, yeah, spent a long time in Iceland. So now, all right, let's get some plot out of the way. Let's get the setup out the way. We are now on the plane, and this is where the finale takes place. So I do appreciate that they get to this point quite quick. They don't kind of mess around um, because we are towards the end of the film. Yeah, mm. yeah, very grateful for that. Yeah, which is nice. So yeah, so we're on the plane, and we see Graves on the plane in like a command room. There's like a pretty big room um, that's kind of at the front of the plane, and it looks like a big command room. So. Graves asks for his his father to be brought down to him. Um, And also we see a very odd-looking suit, like a top of a suit of armour almost, some sort of tech. Um, So we go back to Bond and Jinx. So they have entered the hangar of the plane where they see lots of barrels and sports cars. Um, So they've entered in and they're now sneaking through. So we go back to the command centre where General Moon now enters the room. And we see the three Korean generals from before. They kind of look away, so... I think it's implied that the three Korean generals are the ones that did the coup mm. um, and they've been able to capture General Moon, which is why he's here, because Graves is is the one who orchestrated the coup um, using these generals. So um, we go to Graves and Graves has put on this suit and he looks so stupid. <laughs> like this is a like control suit for Icarus, but he has like these big goggles on. Which they must have known how silly he looks. They're, they're, they're like so magnifying goofy. goggles. It's just if you're yeah. gonna have goggles, don't, don't make his eyes all look big and stupid as well. Come on. No. Yeah, it's like purely amplifying his eyes, really. So Graves turns around and says "Father" in Korean to to General Moon, but Moon's like, "I don't know who you are." 
which then goes with a bit of a back and forth and Graves says, I'll never forget what you taught me, father, which is in war, the victorious strategist only seeks battle after victory has been won, uh, which pretty much kind of proves to Moon uh, that Graves is who he says he is. Um, but Graves is saying this suit is going to guarantee our victory, this Icarus suit. So there is a, then another quick scene of Bond and Jinx just sneaking through the hangar again. Waste of time. But anyway, so that we then go back to Moon. <laughs> so Moon, General Moon approaches Grave and sees his, touches his face. And then very conveniently, there's a head sculpt of Colonel Moon back when he was still Korean before the surgery. So he was able to touch the sculpt and touch Graves and be like, hmm, yes, you are my son. So, <laughs> oh, very handy. I didn't even read it as that, to be honest. I don't know what I was even focusing on at this point, but that's, that's quite funny. It's I think just, that's all you could be. Otherwise, it's, it is very strange. There's this head sculpt of him. Just a random bust there, yeah. Yeah, very helpful. So, yeah, he now kind of believes him and... Uh, general moon's like what have you done to yourself why have you done this and graves is all like come watch father and then he says come watch the rising of your son which i thought was a very strange way of phrasing that i'm assuming there's some tie to japanese with the rising sun or stuff but i didn't want to think about it too much but using the phrase rising sun felt a bit like i don't know what they're trying to say there rising sun yeah he says watch the rising of your son well, the rising of his literal son. I don't know. I don't know if he means sun as in him or sun as in the beam or sun as in like the rising sun of Japan. But obviously he's Korean, so it can't be. He's a clever one, that that Graves. Oh, he, he's got so talented. <laughs> uh, so Graves then uses his power glove, we'll just call it that, to activate Icarus. And what it does is that we get a giant sunbeam again. And that hits the where the minefield. So in the big old area where there's that's separating North Korea and South Korea, where all the mines are, he is destroying the mines in the zone. Um, so Bond is sneaking through the plane. We see a little bit more than that. But then we go back and, yeah, the beam is just completely destroying this big track through the minefield. Lots of explosions going on here. And Graves says, I'm creating a highway for our troops so the idea is that the troops he had stationed are going to invade South Korea once he has drawn a massive line through the minefield that allows them to cross it. Um, so at this point, Bond and Jinx enter the room. And Bond... Or en- no, sorry, enter a different room. My bad. Uh, so this is like... What would you call this room? Like the martial arts fighting room? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's with- just got... Like, it's a lot of martial arts stuff on the walls. It's like where you would practice with swords and things like that. Yeah, on uh, on a plane. Interesting. I never really <laughs> even even put that that together, but that's kind of strange. I put it that Graves and Frost are fencing and are going for the Olympics. Oh, so it probably does make sense room. that they would practice on the plane like this. Wow, I hope they don't get any turbulence. I mean, oh yeah, that'd be oh. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. Ew. Didn't mean to slice you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so Bond and Jinx enter that martial arts room. Bond knocks out a guard. Jinx throws a knife at somebody's throat and kills him. Uh, Graves then starts making a speech about the West, and he says like Japan is a bug waiting to be squashed. And General Moon's not into this, saying, "What are you doing? America will send a load of nukes." And Graves is like, "Don't worry about that. Icarus will destroy them." Uh, but at this point, Moon kind of panics and he grabs somebody's gun and points it at Graves, trying to get him to stop. 
Um, and we cut back to Jinx, who sneaks onto the cockpit of the plane, knocks out the pilot, and like takes control. So now she's piloting the plane. Uh, Graves is talking to General Moon, saying, would you kill your own son? Why would you do that? Um, General Moon says, my son died uh, a while ago. You're not my son. And he's all like, father, you disappoint me. Gives him a little zap. And we get some very dramatic over-the-top music. And then a gunshot goes off that you don't see. But Graves is looking all sad. And we get a slow-mo falling off General Moon going to the ground. And it's all very dramatic. Yeah, it also looks terrible as well. Like, it has more of that weird time remapping where as he gets shot, he's like, he goes really quick and then he goes slow again. And then why why are they do, why, why now, of all times, are they doing that? I kind of get it a bit. If you're going to do that, all right, do it on a car as it's driving and you're getting like a swooping shot over it. That makes sense to me. Why are you doing it on a close-up of a character dying? It just well, make I think any that sense. is something they did back then. Like the big dramatic sad moments got the big dramatic slow-mo stuff as well. <laughs> I don't mind the slow-mo, but it's just the bit before the slow-mo where it goes far, like someone's pressed fast forward. I was like, why, why would you do that? Hmm. Hmm. And this is where also the music, like, I don't really mind this scene. I actually kind of like it just because it's so silly uh, and over the top. But yeah, this is where I don't know if David Arnold was like, I guess I'll do a big chorus of people going like, um, oh, like <laughs> to make it more dramatic. But that's what we get here. Hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe... David Arnold's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> By this point, it's like, oh, bloody hell. Um, yeah, stick in some chorus. Stick in some yeah. voices, I don't know. So I kind of do like all this because it's kind of silly and exaggerated and it matches with uh, Graves' character. The main problem is where we are at in the film <laughs> and the idea that maybe we are meant to care about this because that's absolutely absurd. No chance. Um, but I, I like in a vacuum, but yeah, for where we are in the film probably don't really want to be messing around with this a little bit too late for this yeah i think earlier on this would have been fine for sure yes so where are we so i think at this point bond enters the room of which graves then just sees bond is like oh you're there (laughs) again (laughs) bond doesn't sneak in at all graves just sees him so bond is like grabbed by a guard and as part of the fight with the guard he shoots the gun and I, I don't know if this is a Goldfinger reference. I kind of hope it is. I think it is. Yeah, the gun bullet like rips a hole in the side of the plane due to the pressure. And the engineer guy, if you remember him, he just gets sucked out. So he's gone. Yay! Bye! <laughs> um, but due to this change in pressure, the plane starts kind of freaking out and tilting. and starts like going forward. Um, so more people kind of get sucked out of the plane. I think the Korean generals get sucked out and we see Bond and Grace hanging on as it's like tilting forwards. Um, so Jinx is trying to pull the plane up. It's gone into a nosedive, but she's trying to put it up. And we see Graves is trying to climb up to get to Bond and he just kicks him down. Of which then Bond just like rolls after him to go and fight him. Um, but at this point, Jinx manages to level out the plane Calm things down. We've got a little bit of craziness there, but she manages to uh, to calm things down. So yeah, so not too much to say on this stuff. This is all just kind of part of one big kind of crazy finale, and this is just kind of the start of it. So with Jinx leveling out the plane, we then see Frost appears behind her 
and holds a sword to her neck. And is like, let me see the gun and drop it. Um, so Frost seemingly has Jinx captured. Um, but we go back to Bond and Graves and they wrestle for a little bit. So they're fighting a lot of jumping and forwards with this. Um, but then we go back to Frost and Jinx. So Frost tells Jinx, put the plane on autopilot. And Jinx does that, but she manages to set it up so the plane is going to go directly into the beam that is being fired from Icarus. So she sets that up and Frost doesn't notice. Um, But down below, we're seeing a ton of explosions. So we go back to the sun beam and Charles uh, Charles Robinson is saying, oh, the beam is only 1,000 meters away. So lots of explosions, lots of destruction off the Earth. All the monitors inside their base where MI6 and... The Americans are. They're starting to just blow up. Um, but at this point, the plane actually heads into the beam, which like knocks everyone down. And then we get these kind of missed, these shots that just don't match, where it's the shots of like the plane completely burning up, going through the beam. And <laughs> yeah. then people just being like, whoa. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like there might have been a bit of a mishap in, uh, in the order of things here. It seems like there should be a bit more of a reaction there. Yeah, they just don't match. Like, the impact of this beam, it just causes commotion for those the people inside. It, there's <laughs> no sense of, like, we are in the middle of a literal sunbeam. <laughs> and I hope the plane holds. <laughs> well, especially because it starts tearing apart. Yeah, but like, it's... it's- being ripped apart by this beam on the outside. It's holding out pretty well inside. Yeah, considering. <laughs> so Jinx and Frost has made it to like the fencing martial arts room. And this is when the plane goes into the beam. So it gives kind of Jinx a... Or actually, I think Frost attacks Jinx with the sword. But the plane shortly after escapes the beam. And that's when the proper fight between Jinx and Frost plays out. So she gets a small blades out that jinx has these like little blades that she's using she throws some and one of them goes into the art of war the book for the art of war which was in that room so frost and jinx starts fighting frost is like kind of swinging her sword no yeah jinx is mostly trying to avoid her she manages to find like two small swords so it's frost is like big sword against her small sword they're fighting each other with these swords jinx like gives frost the old elbow to the face we then cut back to Graves punching Bond for a bit. So they're still fighting. Uh, and then we get like a slow-mo slice from Frost where she like manages to slide Jinx's torso, but it's all in slow-mo. Uh, and then we go back to Graves and Bond fighting where Graves kicks Bond, but it's all in slow-mo. That means <laughs> they, it's cool. Yeah, they go all in on this stuff. Apparently they couldn't do the Matrix stuff, but they wanted to do like a version of it, but... Never mind. So uh, Bond punches Graves and Graves starts slapping Bond. But we go back to Jinx and Frost and Jinx starts doing like some wacky backflips here. Just really going crazy. Um, But that causes Jinx to be facing the other way from Frost. And Frost is like, ah, I can read your every move. So Jinx just throws, finds the book, like the knife that has the book in it, throws that knife and the book... That goes into a chest. I think she then kicks it or something. Mm, and read says, this. Read this, bitch. So Frost is now being killed by Jinx. And yeah, I mean, 
I guess the thing that's kind of very odd about this is that like Frost is in like <laughs> isn't wearing much for this. No, she's not. I wonder why. They, yeah, it's a mystery. They they very clearly just started using this character for just like the sex appeal. Like let's have sexy young woman just wearing like a very a top that just barely covers her chest, and that's that. And now we're gonna have her do a fight with Jinx, Harry Berry, and it's. I mean, it's not played to be super sexy. To be fair, outside of that, this does seem like quite a legit fight between the two, and I think the fight itself is pretty all right. It's not bad. Uh, it's just. Well, I don't really like either of these characters, so I just don't really care all that much. Yeah, not, it doesn't yeah. really do much to save either of them. Yeah, I think on that level, in terms of character, not very invested. But I also just think visually, the way these and the fight with Bond and Graves are just filmed in such a. I mean, they are on a plane that's falling apart. To give you know, to be a bit fair, but you know, it's all so shaky and sound like you can't really even focus on something before it switches back to them, and it cuts back to them, and it cuts back to them, and it's like there's no. They're not giving these scenes like any kind of tension. It's just constant back and forth, which you said earlier, like their attempt to build up tension maybe or something or just keep it going. But it just kind of has the opposite effect and just makes it all that. I really just don't care about what's going on with both of them, but especially the uh, the Frost and Jinx fight. Uh, yeah, I yeah, guess. This kind of ties into how they try to characterize Jinx, which is she is her own agent. She's basically a female Bond in a lot of ways. And it means they had to separate all this stuff to give her her own proper fight. And it was just not the way to go. It just makes it more confusing and weird where Wei Lin and Bond, they tied them together and had them work together. And there was some separation. Yeah, she buggered off to go into the engine room. But they were just smarter. It's the same idea, really. They were just kind of a bit smarter about it. And it was shot in a more cohesive way where this is like, oh, she's going to go and do her own thing, her own storyline. Which is like, oh, who cares about this? I don't need to see this. No. Um, so yeah, Bond and Graves—they're still fighting. Uh, Graves is Graves is zapping Bond real good with his cyber suit now, and snarling the whole way through. He's he's loving it all so much, and uh, he's also like bleeding on the lips as well. It makes him look really horrible, like kind of like really red-lipped and not not like a lipstick way. It's just like gruesome way. Um, yeah, it's like blood between his teeth on his yeah, lower Yeah, yeah. Looks bad. Uh, but yeah, Bond falls to the floor um, after that last zapping and Graves goes to a nearby cabinet uh, on the plane and grabs two parachutes. Says, oh, look, parachutes for the both of us. And then kind of cartoonishly just throws on out. And, Whoops. Ah, <laughs> um, oh, I wish out. you... Oh. I want you to put more energy into that. <laughs> Try and match his energy. Oh, what does he? What does he actually say? It's like, oh look, parachutes for the both of us. Oops, not anymore. It's so good. Yeah, you're, you're, you're the line. you're the resident Graves impersonator, I think, for this podcast. Because <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. That's the thing that really made me laugh, and I remember loving it as a kid. It was just so funny seeing that old Graves come back, being so like happy and that like eccentric billionaire persona and just being so smug uh, i love that line right to the bitter end yeah yeah uh but yeah he puts on the one he didn't throw out the window and crouches down to bond and, and says to him you can't kill my dreams but my dreams can kill you oh time to face destiny <laughs> uh, as it, I, I say this only because of bond's line later uh bond 
having had that said, Bond pulls the ripcord to uh, Graves' parachute, which obviously opens it at the back. And because he's nearby to the window, parachute gets sucked out. And so does he. So he's now like pretty much out of the window, um, hanging on onto the edge. And this is where Bond gets up and says, time to face gravity. (laughs) Which doesn't really... Anyway, um, and presses a button on the front of the cyber suit, which for some reason, I guess it's... Yeah, it causes the whole suit to become electrified and, and yeah, Graves gets electrocuted, which causes him to let go. And so he gets sucked into the jet engine and positively vaporized. Like you see, you see him burn up and come out the other end. So that's that's the end of Graves. I really like the death for Graves. Actually, it's just as over the top and silly as he is. Mm. It, it's very CGI, like a lot of this stuff is, which is kind of a shame. But I think it works well enough. The only problem I have is the line. Well, I feel like him being sucked into a jet engine, especially with the fact that he gets a, like electrocutes himself, I feel like there must have been something so much better than time to face gravity. Because yeah. gravity doesn't kill him. Exactly. That's what I was about to say, but I stopped myself. But it doesn't that it doesn't make sense. But I think everything else I actually really like as an ending. I like his smugness. I like how silly he looks. I like that Bond kind of uses his smugness against him to pull the parachute and he gets sucked out and dramatically explodes in the engine. I think all that stuff's actually really good. Mm. I just, I think I would have liked, because we got a taste of it before in the fencing fight, I wish they had just kind of focused purely on Bond and Graves in this ending bit. I know they had to deal with, with Frost, but I think, as I mentioned, it's just that constant cutting back and forth. I would have liked like one nice ending and instead we got just like little slithers of it and then this final bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I honestly, like someone getting sucked into a jet engine, that's that's great. Come on now, you can't, you can't go wrong with that. It's like Sherry Bobbin style and The Simpsons just like completely sucked through. So that's all good. Uh, so after that, Bond heads uh, into the area where Jinx and Frost were fighting and spots Frost's dead body uh, with Jinx just sitting nearby. Um I think I broke her heart, which actually, again, it's not a terrible line for Jinx when she says that. So no, um, that's fine. That's fine. That passes. Uh, but yeah, they. I think she says, I can't remember. So about, go, I guess we're going down together. Bond says, not yet. So they head to the cargo area of the plane, and Jinx goes and opens the the back door of the plane, similar to the one we saw in Live, uh, Living Daylights. So it all opens up, and. Inside, there's a heli. It just so happens to be a helicopter inside this plane, so that's quite uh, that's quite useful. So they start unloading all the stuff because it's on a big conveyor belt. So there's all these fancy sports cars ahead of it, and they get chucked off. The whole plane is starting to fall apart now, um, and they get into the helicopter, and they literally fall out of the plane in the helicopter. And Bond is there in it, trying to gain control of it as it's spinning, and they're. You know, the falling pieces of the plane around them and nearly hitting them. And Jinx turns around and looks and spots that the the helicopter is completely full of tons of diamonds in the back. So at least they'll die rich. But uh, of course, just at the last second, Bond gains control of the helicopter and it swoops just as just as it's about to hit the ground and goes back up. And we do get a shot of one of the <laughs> one of the planes. Uh, sorry, one of the cars like vertically stuck in the mud and there's this farmer there looking at it i wonder if that's a reference to 
Oh. Was that Moonraker? I think it was, where they had like a car perfectly vertical in the house. That could be another reference. Oh, with the Italian... Italian no. guy, yeah. Wasn't that... Oh, maybe that was. I, I was thinking The Spy Who Loved Me, where Jaws comes out of the house. Comes out of the house? Yeah, you know, when the Oh, the yeah, car no, that lands. is The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, sorry, that yeah, is The Spy Yeah, that's The Spy Who Loved Me, yeah. Yeah, I knew it was Jaws, but yeah. Um, so yeah, they're fine. They're all good. They fly off. And we cut to... Randomly, we cut back to MI6 uh, in London. And Moneypenny is there. She's in her office. They're very late and moody and dark. And she is typing up uh, what looks to be like a sort of press release on her computer about what happened in North Korea. And uh, saying it was a freak electrical storm that caused all of this and all of the landmines to go off. And Bond walks in and walks over to her, or she walks up to him and starts to touch his tie. And I don't think there's any dialogue here. They just start kissing. And Moneypenny pulls Bond by his tie onto her desk and he sweeps all the stuff off her desk very passionately. Moneypenny, oh, James. And then, of course, Q interrupts because, yeah, it's another it's another training simulator VR thing. Um we see Money Penny, she's just on that same bit of Bond was, but on the floor. <laughs> and she says she's just testing it out and she's all flustered as she's buttoning up her top. That's the bit that I'm guessing you really don't like. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it comes right at the end of the film, yeah, just that's cut a it. Bit like, we just don't need it at this point. But also, I think it does, like, it's just a bit of a stain on Samantha Bond as Money Penny. I think overall she's been pretty solid, pretty good, not amazing, but pretty good. And I think going all in with this is just lame. Like it just kind of destroys some of the character of Money Penny, where you kind of, you know, it's obviously kind of, especially with the original films, heavily implied that she's actually does really like Bond and would like this to happen. But to actually show it, I just like ah no, just just cut it. And so, which is why I would cut this and cut the last one as well. Just keep make the film a little bit shorter. This really has nothing to do with anything, once again. I think mm. it does ruin Samantha Bonds as Money Penning a little bit. And actually, this is what I think of when it comes to her Money Penning out, oh, no. which sucks because I think everything else, she's actually pretty good. Uh, but yeah, this is just, just this is just kind of bad. I mean, it's pretty quick and we're nearly done. But yeah, just bad. Yeah, definitely a strange location to put it. Because yeah, the next shot is literally the, the, the last part of the film. We, we see this big wide angle shot of uh, this kind of small temple in the mountains with a helicopter that's landed out kind of outside it. And inside, Bond and Jinx are there in bed together. But before you actually see them, there's this dialogue, this kind of very uh, innuendo-based dialogue. Oh, Jinx is saying, don't pull it out yet. Oh, no, wait, wait, wait. And then what do you see? It's actually a diamond in her belly button, you sickos. Diamonds. It's, yeah, it's just a diamond and... Uh, can't remember what they say, but they eventually start to kiss, and that's the end of the film. Hey, and yeah, then you get that electro die another day song again. I could I could have just give me the Bond theme at the end of Bond films. That's more than enough, but at least yeah, it's fine. Yeah, another one of those kind of city endings with the joke endings, but quite brief. That's the thing they do kind of get you out of there. <laughs> it's just all very brief. Like let's do the Indowindos and the Bond. Bond and the Bond girl kissing and yeah it's not the worst one but a bit pointless yeah so that was Die Another Day that was Die Another Day we certainly will 
Um, so uh, it's me to go first, I believe, because it's a even number episode. Yeah. So I would say this is my favorite Bond film. Oh, that involves diamonds. Oh, <laughs> got him. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, you. So you know, obviously, we got a little bit negative and a little bit tired towards the end here. Um, but that's because you know it's decently long film. It's 133 minutes. It's quite action paced. But overall, I enjoyed this one. I would actually say it's good. Um, and I think it does come down to, you know, kids. You got to know who you are. You got to know what you're about. And Die Another Day knows what it's about. It's it's crazy. It's over the top. It's maybe not the most over the top Bond gets. I think it gets sillier in other films, but in terms of being that like city action film, you know, this is pretty out there. But I think it actually balances things really well to find a really nice tone where it's just a popcorn film. It's just something to turn your brain off and see some Bond classic stuff and some Bond staples and some craziness and stuff. And I think for that, it's actually quite successful for what it does. And I was surprised at how much the humor made me laugh. I was surprised at how much the action actually works really well and can be really cool. And I think some of the locations are pretty solid. I think, and some of the character interactions, I think a lot of this stuff actually works a lot better than I thought it would. And I think, you know, the biggest crimes here is that it is an early 2000s film and it has a lot of the shortcomings of that type of film. And we've talked about this a lot, where a lot of Bond films are products of their era, and certain eras as a whole, not just for Bond, have aged better than others. Like we said, how the 60s aged quite well because of how unique it is. And the 90s we talked about with GoldenEye and Tomorrow Never Dies aged quite well because there's a real charm to that. The early 2000s do not age well at all. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I think Die Another Day is somewhat of a victim of that. So unfortunately, I've got to criticise things like the CGI. I wasn't massively bothered by it, but especially this ending bit with the helicopter and the plane looks terrible with the CGI. Yeah. Um, and there are just things throughout it where like the CGI becomes a focus and you get some really awkward, bad looking shots and it does look bad. It's the, uh, it doesn't bother me that much, but it definitely is a negative towards the film that brings it down. That just so heavily relies on CGI where if they just went for more simplistic practical shots, it actually would have helped a ton. Um, and also, you know, the frost stuff, is pretty terrible she she is bad in this film the dialogue is bad in this film and there are some really bad lines from jinx i don't really hate jinx when it comes down to it i think frost distracts me too much from that but it isn't handled as well as tomorrow never dies does it i think hattie berry and the, her acting doesn't help but i think her dialogue is actually the main problem and they really wanted the idea of this like female 007 and it just doesn't really work too well but even then I still enjoy this at the end of the day. And I have to say, Gustav Graves, really fun villain. I had a great time with this guy. I thought he was really good. Uh, and for this type of like hammy over the top villain, he goes all in with it, the actor, and actually gave me someone that was quite interesting. And I think someone that actually works really well against Bond. So I enjoyed it. I had a good time. Now, I'm not going to rank it highly. <laughs> okay. right, let's not get too ahead of ourselves yeah yeah let's not go crazy here but and this is the thing i wanted to figure out am i going to be basic and am i going to rank the pierce Brosnan films as everyone does which is it gets worse as it goes on but honestly i like this more than the world is not enough i think this film knows more what it wanted to be and it's more successful at doing that 
maybe it's not as ambitious and maybe it's a bit too crazy and all over the place and it has its own flaws but i appreciate this being successful at doing something that it wants to do rather than the world is not enough which is just a frustrating disappointment so it's going above the world is not enough um so then that takes me to the living daylights on my list and i think i had more fun with this than the living daylights okay i think the living daylights is a bit more bland and i think that film had worse pacing issues than die another day because die another day does have some pacing issues but it's still not that bad i think living daylights is more bland and forgettable and more pacing issues do i like it more than moonraker no i think moonraker is probably more fun and is more out there actually than this film so that's where it's gonna live it's gonna go at number 15 so underneath moonraker but above the living daylights hmm so yeah i think i don't think it was ever going to be at the bottom like a lot of people's lists especially after hearing what you've said about it so far so i think that's yeah i think that's that makes total sense where you put that yeah like it's it's somewhat a similar film to like a moonraker and to one ever dies but i think those films are probably better what they do and this is kind of like another version of them a pretty good enjoyable version of them but i probably would just if i want that sort of bond i probably would still watch tomorrow never dies and moonraker before that but at the same time everything kind of below die another day in my list i find a bit like soulless and disappointing and a bit joyless <laughs> so uh, i don't find die another day like that so that's that's why it kind of slots in there oh i'm i'm frustrated i think with this film because as I mentioned, I was really enjoying this uh, for the first first half of it, I would say. All very solid stuff. I mean, maybe not all solid, but a lot of st- enough there to make me like it. I liked the stuff in Cuba. I liked um, uh, I liked the the underground station stuff and and the cue scenes. And I just I, I just think it really dropped the ball for me in the Ice Palace. And from that point on especially on the later bit of the Ice Palace. And from that point on, I just, I was, that was it. I don't know. And that's why I'm frustrated because I was thinking, oh, this actually, this is actually going to be all right. And I, I'm going to be able to put this not high, but somewhere maybe in the two thirds region and, and higher than maybe some people would expect. And then it just kind of dropped the ball for me. Um, and it's not even really because of the things that a lot of people would moan about usually, or in the past have done this the cgi doesn't really bother me at this point terribly much i can live with it i know it's coming um and jinx is also not actually that bad she's just i don't hate her i think she's just cringy really which is honestly not terrible um and actually graves i'm saying all the stuff i like about it but graves was better than i remember him being as well I don't think he's quite Carver levels of of hammy lit, like hammy villains, but he's all right. He's pretty good. But there's just still something about it that by that point in in the ice palace section, I just I think it was that that bit talking about like the the torture stuff and how to me it it went down that lane which was a smart choice to make, but it meant it went down the lane that I didn't really love, and I, I just I don't know. I wanted to see for the for the 40th anniversary for the 20th film i would have hoped that this would be a bit of a stronger entry um i definitely didn't hate it though uh, unlike you i think i liked it more than the world is not enough um which i just found dull pretty much the whole way through this at least i enjoyed the first half 
So with that being said, I'm going to pull it. And again, I'm a little bit stuck um, with my rankings in terms of Goldfinger, because there is no way that this is better than Goldfinger. So because it's better than The World's Not Enough, and I'm not moving Goldfinger, by the way. I refuse. No, you stand by (laughs) what you want to do. I know what you're all thinking out there, and I'm not doing it. Um, It's going to go below Goldfinger, but above The World Is Not Enough on my list. So 17th. So I think I might have the only Bond ranking list where Goldfinger is next to die another day. (laughs) But you know what? That's fine. Um, But the thing I think is quite interesting about this film is, as we said right at the beginning, it made a ton of money. It was very successful for what it needed to do for the for the board, <laughs> for the for the producers. Yeah. I think critical reception, even at the time, wasn't very good. I, I get the impression and, and reading about it as well. So I do wonder how much it's like that saying about like X had to run, so Y could sorry, X had to walk, so Y could run. And I wonder how much of this actually then led into Casino Royale being the way it was. I know there are other factors, other franchises, things like that, but I do wonder whether they saw this and thought, we went too far with this, and then that's why they stripped it so far back with the next film. I I think they definitely did, yeah. I think this was definitely a bit of a... like. I think they were on this trajectory and they were getting away with it, but... Yeah, and we know it was the smart choice. We definitely know it was a smart choice, and I think it takes a lot of discipline from them to say, "Well, die another day" was a huge hit, but they might have just been seeing trends elsewhere. But yeah, like I've yeah, this kind of. I'm trying to think if there was any other examples for the Bond franchise, and I'm kind of coming up blank, where they had to go all in on one direction to then swing back to the other. I'm sure there probably is, but I can't think of one at the time. Um, mm. but this does feel like that but in, in some ways I feel like Tomorrow Never Dies is still the more over the top film it's just Die Another Day has this yeah the Jinx character and the CGI stuff but like I feel like Tomorrow Never Dies is actually a little bit wackier than this one uh, uh, they're, yeah I don't know they're different they're just they're very different but yeah I think so. In that regard, I can kind of appreciate it because if this if this is the reason why we got Casino Royale, then hey, <laughs> it can't be all bad. Yeah, but I I think for me though, like, and this is where like critical response and like retrospective reviews and stuff kind of come in, where it's like I can just watch Die Another Day for what it is and just kind of have that popcorn film, that summer flick or whatever, and enjoy that. And just take that as what it is because it's not the current one and it's not the current trajectory of Bond and we've had a whole other era of Bond after this. So Die Another Day can kind of do its own thing and be that silly, wacky one that's kind of flawed but fun. Um, and I can kind of take it as that, which probably makes me look like a hypocrite because I'm pretty sure I've criticised other films for <laughs> for that. Um, but there's something about Die Another Day. Maybe it's nostalgia, I don't know. But I kind of expect this to be a big old mess and I think it's a big old fun mess (laughs) and i think that's probably what people saw in the cinema like this is a big old fun mess with james bond and hattie berry was somewhat of a name as well there was there was like reasons to go and see it and have some fun um or reasons to go and see it and criticize it i guess but there was there was like hype behind it more than like any other uh pierce brosnan film so and that translated to sales it's just 
yeah i guess they were smart enough to say let's redirect but i i think i can i get it i think it does make sense that this film did well because it's fun and i think that's what most people ultimately want with a lot of films yeah yeah and i think you're saying about kind of nostalgia for it nostalgia is a very powerful thing um that can really you can you can forgive a lot of stuff if it hits you in the right spot i think i said that about the other films so I, I don't blame you for enjoying it as much as you do. I wish I could have, but it just wasn't quite there for me in the same way, sadly. Hmm. And this might be where just length comes in as well, um, because this is 133 minutes. So, And this is the the issue I had with the John Glenn era, where it's like, it's not that I necessarily hate those films, but when you're making those films as long as those, you better bring something. Mm. And for me, Dying of a Day is just kind of crazy. So that was enough to kind of, you know, bring me on for the ride where John Glenn was just boring. But yeah, again, if your film's going to be like 130 minutes long, if you kind of lose the audience or lose somebody, you're never bringing them back. And then they're just stuck watching a film. They're not that into. <laughs> so that's always pretty brutal. I did feel a bit stuck. <laughs> you wanted to get I, off at the station, but you missed, you missed it. I missed the stuff. I felt like Halle Berry on that laser table, but no one was there to save me. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's Piers Brosnan done. Oh, yeah. Any uh, any thoughts on the Piers? I think... Oh, it's so funny when thinking about Piers Brosnan. I mean, this could be a whole other podcast about talking about his era as Bond, but, or an episode anyway. But I just... Uh, lots of people do say, yeah, his films got worse and worse as he went on. And I think we've both said that we don't agree with that um today but it is still kind of sad that the path his bond took they're not they're definitely not without uh kind of things to like about them but when they start off with goldeneye i mean i like tomorrow never dies more but for most people goldeneye is always gonna be the top one when you start out at that and you end up at this point it's just so it's such a big jump and I think also the terms that where he sort of was pretty much booted out of the role rather than actually leaving on his own accord, it just kind of makes it, in retrospect, it just makes it all a little bit sad for me. I think he he did deserve better, actually, because I think during all of our episodes about the Pierce Brosnan films, we've never really complained about Brosnan himself. No. He's always been very, very solid and and arguably a very good mixture of previous Bonds. So... Yeah, I just, I honestly just think it's a little bit of a shame that maybe this was the right time for him to leave in terms of age, regardless, but maybe just not on these terms. Yeah, I think him leaving makes sense after dying another day. I think that was the right call. But I think the one that hurts for me is The World Is Not Enough, where it had a ton of potential, but it just didn't play to his strengths at all. And it just is a complete wasted film. Where, But I think with Goldeneye, you get that great film and that classic and then tomorrow never dies you get the other end of the scale and then i would even argue die another day is that same end of the scale and i think he's really funny and good in the film it's just the world is not enough that's the one that hurts for me so i definitely haven't really changed my opinion that much on pierce i think it's really interesting how many of these ideas are here and come back for daniel craig's bond mm. but the one that hurts the most is the world is not enough because it's like if that was better i actually think he would have had a had a really solid set of films that cover a lot of the Bond era. And yeah, again, people do like him overall, but I think he could have been like uh, a little bit more like he could have had that 
if just that bloody third film wasn't so well not good (laughs) it was not enough it wasn't sadly yeah all right, well, there we go. That was Die Another Day. This is our longest episode. Hooray! Hooray! I knew it. I knew it was going to happen. If it, was any, it. if it was any film, it was going to be this one. Oh, yeah. So any last thoughts before we go? I'm off to go watch the, um, the Jinx spin-off, right? Oh. They, made, they made that, right? Um, they got oh. closer than they should have done to making it. <laughs> I'll find it. It must be on Netflix somewhere. I'll go they got look. dangerously close. <laughs> Yo, mama. Oh. Ah, oh, she's really disappointed in you, Joe. <laughs> she wanted me to tell you. Oh, let me turn the lasers back on. Yeah, all right. I'll join you in a second. So, <laughs> okay. So, thank you very much for listening. You have been listening to episode twenty of the Bond Revisited podcast. The Bond Revisited podcast will return next week for Casino Royale.